Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. I'm Sam. I am. Welcome to the Lifeboats. The view meter got me again. Okay, we have a lot, really three primary topics to cover. It's a lot of material. There's a lot of things happened. It's just been an eventful couple of weeks here. And so, of course, we're going to talk about what happened with um, Silicon Valley Bank and its collapse and what led up to the collapse and, uh, you know, what the collapse means and what the government's likely to do about it. Here's a hint. It's probably going to make it worse. And how the Fed is really now between a rock and a hard place that's slowly moving closer and closer together on them. And so we're going to break that down. There's also a lot of things coming out related to the Twitter files with this program of government censorship. Now, you remember we had the Nina lady, the government censorship czar or ministry of truth kind of thing that they tried to do. Well, they fired her because she got way too much attention. And then they brought in the secret committee and they've been working away. So we're going to look at uh, testimony that was given to the, some of the Congress critters by Matt Taibbi and uh, oh gosh, the other guy was uh, Michael Schellenberger. Uh, and, they make some really, really phenomenal points. And there are some, I think, very profound implications, not just for us, but for future generations as to what the government's trying to do. It is literally Orwellian, you know, in the most perfect sense. They are trying to become the thought police enforcing right think and silencing those that engage in wrong think. So we're, we're going to walk through that as well. I've got some clips uh, that I've cut out. But there's also something out about these COVID-19 gene transfection therapies that they sold to you as vaccines. And it has to do with plasmids. And it's got some very, I think, troubling, very profound implications. And so that's where I'm going to start us off tonight is with Kevin McKernan. Now, we had a Kevin McCarran on who's also kind of in this field and doing research and stuff along these lines. But Kevin is actually, and I believe, oh, uh, no, I don't know where it is. I thought I took a screenshot of his slide, but he's basically a, um, a PhD geneticist. Really, uh, I have trouble following his stuff as much as I've read on all of this. Um, and he's been doing some experiments that we're going to walk through but I want to back up a little bit because there's this video uh, from Jonathan at alltherisks.com that I want to play for you, kind of warning about what's going on, uh, you know, what, what their concerns were related to these injections. And he says, uh, last year I, w I warned of possible large-scale contamination in BioNTech and Pfizer's COVID-19 due to a complex manufacturing process using E. coli, you know, the deadly bacteria that they scare us with. I said, quote, we don't have any evidence of it, end quote. I'm afraid we do now. On a massive scale, see Kevin McKernan's work. And Kevin's retweeting this saying, with this much plasmid contamination, I'm going to explain what plasmid is to you guys, don't worry about this, as well as LPS is a major concern. Okay. So, what they've seen has really spooked them, and they are jicky as well, raising major, major alarms about this. 
But I want to start here with Jonathan's video. Uh, let me go. And what about contaminants in Pfizer's jab? Well, firstly, we don't know exactly what it is because all COVID-19 vaccines, the full quantitative composition is a trade secret. It's commercially sensitive information. You're not entitled to know. There's Pfizer's raw ingredients table, 3.2 P11, released for my freedom of information request. It's the only one we have for any of the pharmaceuticals. You can see the redactions at the bottom. I've asked them many times, sent it to the ICO. We're not entitled to know the exact raw ingredients. Next, here's some of the acceptance criteria leaked by RAI, Italian national broadcaster for Pfizer. So Pfizer's drug doesn't isn't grown in a human cell line, but it is grown basically in bacteria, E. coli, in order to replicate the, uh, the, the, the DNA, basically, ultimately, which then gets transcribed into RNA. So they basically insert uh, plasmid DNA into uh, E. coli cells. They then ferment that in nutrient broth. And now you have this linear DNA template, which you then convert through in vitro transcription into the mRNA. So what could go wrong? Well, you could get bacterial contamination because you started off in E. coli. It wasn't a human cell line, but it was E. coli. So I asked the question, um, is there more bacterial contamination than the acceptance criteria? I don't have any evidence of it, but we just saw the example from AstraZeneca. We just saw that the limits were breached hundreds of times. We saw their results didn't even stand up. So I don't know, and here you go. Here's Zhang published in American Chemical Society. The traditional detection methods for detecting this kind of endotoxins, so this is from the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, of LAL assays suffers from drawbacks like narrow detection range. So who knows? Maybe in a year's time we'll find those results were no good and it's contaminated with bacteria or something else or, or bio-burden, that's microorganisms. Or and this, this was something that these European agencies and the Australian agencies asked for and the pharmaceutical cartels just ignored and they, they knew the answer. And of course in Europe, what did they do? They changed the contamination level, increased it in order, you know, right before they rolled these shots out. Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, maybe there's too much residual DNA or residual double-stranded RNA. It should be single-stranded. That can cause problems. There's a paper saying that residual double-stranded RNA can cause myocarditis, potentially. You don't know, because you're, trust you're trusting the regulators of SAIS. Did you just, did we just see what happened with AstraZeneca? How do we know? And they haven't shut down AstraZeneca globally because of what we just saw? Did you hear about that in the media? Did anyone hear about that in the media? Because I didn't hear about that in the media. They're not talking about it. Okay. So I asked, I went to Jicky and I'm like, what does this mean? Can you explain it to me? And this was his response. He said, unrestricted cDNA. Now that's this, there's this, you heard Jonathan talk about linear RNA and uh, linear DNA, circular DNA, double stranded. There's a lot of different ones here, but I think unrestricted circular DNA at high concentrations. What does it what does it mean? It's number one. He says very high risk of genomic integration of heterable genetic information, meaning it can incorporate itself into your genome and threaten the integrity of your DNA, as we'll see. Number two, antibiotic resistant genes transmissible from E. coli in your gut, potentially inducing widespread immunoglycoside resistance in the community. Now, what is that? That's you heard him talk about the gram-negative bacteria. That's exactly what he was uh, referring to there, is the, 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 that compound, aminoglycoside, is what they primarily use to treat uh, bacteria. So what they've done is set up a potential uh, 
antibiotic resistant strain that could pass around to all of us. And then we've lost one of our primary tools in fighting bacteria in the human body. And number three, illegal use of drug regulators instead of gene therapy regulators by lying about the level of contamination. So if they had told the truth about how much of this stuff was in there, and we're going to look at that in just a second here, these should have been classified as a GMO on this level of plasmid contamination alone, irrespective of the RNA. Why? Because this thing runs a very high risk of getting reintegrated again into your genome. This is something that could be passed on to your kids as well. So let me go back to, well, I scrolled down right here. Okay, so here's uh, Jicky's thread on this. He says, more analysis from uh, Kevin showing huge amounts of plasmid DNA in the, quote, it's just RNA, mRNA, right? Gene therapy vaccines, no worries. There's no such thing as too many cycles. Remember, uh, take that. And he's referring to this guy right here who says there's no such thing as too many cycles, who earlier when this story was very first posted, uh, he came out and made a comment to this right here to say, well, you cycled it. You went to 45 cycles. That's ridiculous. It's not an accurate result. And they said, oh, wait, well, hold on. Obviously, this guy's a shill for the, the testing companies. They said, well, if 45 is not good for this, then why was it good for a positive COVID test? And he deleted the tweet and blocked them. <laughs> okay. So lay transition in one tweet, the plasmids that were used to produce the mRNA in the vaccine are made up of DNA, which can integrate into the genome. They are a very high level. They are very high level contaminants in the vaccine at high concentrations. This is outside of any legal GMO directive. Okay. And there was this whole argument as far as uh, reverse transcription and, and this whole line one process and, is the mRNA getting reverse transcribed back into the genome? Well, this makes that a moot point, is what they're saying. Because you have so many of these double-stranded DNA, these circular DNA, that are going to go in and replicate, that it's guaranteed that it's going, you know, stands a very high likelihood of getting reverse transcribed into your genome. And uh, that's kind of what he's pointing out here. Let me see. At what point will Eric Fried of the corrupted NIH realize that the authors he bullied into retracting a perfect paper were actually trying to warn people like him that it does the same in the prostate as it does in the ovaries and lymphocytes? GMO vaccines include DNA and mRNA vaccines. If they weren't GMOs, why did the EMA need to relax the rules for GMOs to get them through? In any case, plasma gate has just blown. They are GMOs out of the water because it, it basically proves it, okay? Now, he also, uh, let me see. We're going to go to that, but let me jump back here because if you remember, this was a story that we covered a while back uh, from ArcMedic's blog, and it was the question of, well, who owns you if if you have been genetically modified and, and it's changed your genome and you've got now patented genes inside your body, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, uh, 
Here he's pointing out a plasmid is a virus-like piece of circular DNA used in the lab to create huge amounts of RNA to get uh, your recombinant stuff. If it gets in your cells, you become a subsidy of Pfizer's lab. I wouldn't put it past them to charge you a franchise fee. And that's what this, we covered this on the show a long time ago when it came out. And that's what he's exploring here. Like this is going to be passed down to children. Are they going to come after them for a licensing fee? Because he's pointing out cases where that's exactly what they've done. And at the end of that article, there's a paragraph that you can cut and paste that asks them, are they ever going to do anything like this in the you know proper language? And you can take and mail that off to Pfizer or to Moderna or J&J if you got any of these shots and ask them that question. I guess not J&J because it wouldn't, well, I don't, I don't know. We'd have to find out. But the real problem here is kind of, it's not like it's the same piece of circular DNA every time. It's fragments. It's all these different pieces. So I had this whistleblower that I was talking to about a year ago who was actually doing the, the mRNA formulations and was telling me, Sam, we run it through the process in the lab and we don't get consistent results. And was talking about filtration that they do afterwards to remove probably this stuff. I, you know, I didn't completely understand it at the time, but they would run it through these columns to sort of catch the stuff that they don't want staying in the product. And even with some of those filtrations, it was still not consistent. Well, guess what we know now? Let me go back over to here. And uh, I believe this is Kevin's blog. He's writing uh, Pfizer and Moderna bivalent vaccines contain 20 to 35% expression vector. Now that's the plasmids and are transformation competent in E. coli. And that's where Jickey's explaining the risks there of the gut bacteria, the E. coli becoming antibiotic resistant as a result of what they've done. Pfizer and Moderna bivalent vaccines are contaminated with the expression vector used to manufacture mRNAs, while EMA documents suggest these double-stranded DNAs are linearized. No data is provided to quantitate uh, this important step. Linear plasmids are less replication competent than circular plasmids, right? With early estimates of billions of potentially contaminating molecules of DNA, even 99% efficient linear linearization reactions could still leave millions of replication component uh, competent plasmids behind. So this is this waste product that's been produced in their manufacturing process to get the mRNA. Okay. Initial sequencing did not sequence deeply enough to ascertain the completeness of the linear linear linearization reaction levels likely underestimate the level of plasmid contamination present. We explored several methods. So what Kevin's done here is he's taken and figured out four different ways to come in and measure this. Okay. And he's basically explained them here, you know, what method one through four of different ways to validate that this is what's happened. Okay. Or this is what we're seeing in these vials. And so that others could replicate his work, right? The manufacturing of vaccine-based mRNAs uh, can lead to residual plasmid DNA being left behind in the vaccine mRNAs. The method can also lead to truncated mRNA synthesis, okay? What is that? Well, those are those smaller pieces, right? 
And when it happens in your body to your cells, they call those mutations and those lead to cancers. So they've literally put people, injected people with something that 20 to 35% of the contents are going to start producing genetic mutations, integrating into their genome, doing God knows what. And of course, maybe that's why when the ethical skeptic looks at his data, this is malignant neoplasms in zero to 54, you can see it's now on a 12 sigma run. This is, this came out a few hours ago. And what he's pointing out is that, well, the COVID deaths, that's this little fading bar up here at the top for those of you watching. The COVID deaths are sort of fading away down to zero. And now they're left with all of these unexplained cancer deaths. So what, what are they going to do? How do they explain this? And they are literally, the, the narrative does not support, the data does not support the narrative by any stretch of the imagination at this point. So they are having to become more and more extreme in their lies and deceptions in order to basically avoid this whole fraud from coming unraveled. And it's, it's happening anyway, as, as we're going to go through some more here. Okay. Uh, let me go back to the article here. All right. This, this was listed as a concern by the EMA and TGA. That's the Europe and Australian authorities, so-called. The presence of E. coli-based plasmid is a canary for lipopolysaccharide or LPS or an endotoxin. That's what Kevin was referring to in that initial tweet that we started with. And this is a contamination. Whenever you see high levels of plasmid contamination derived from the gram-negative bacteria like E. coli, you should expect high levels of endotoxin contamination. Injecting endotoxin can lead to anaphylaxis. Have we not? How many videos have we watched of people that just immediately down and they're done at these injection centers? And toxic shock syndrome. Now, what is TS? S, toxic shock syndrome. Well, John Hopkins Medicine here, they're going to explain it to us, but first they've got some urgent COVID updates. Let's take a look at those. Masks are required inside all of our care facilities. We're vaccinating all eligible participants or patients. I wonder why at this point with all we know, they would be still engaging in something like that, but Let's look at TSS. Total toxic shock syndrome is a cluster of symptoms that involve many symptoms of the body. Certain bacterial infections release toxins into the bloodstream. So this is like a waste product. Uh, then spreads the toxins to the body's organs. This can cause severe damage and illness. Of course, we know that's happening from the biodistribution assays studies. And so they go through some of the most common symptoms. Now there's three different types of bacteria that they identify here. I'm just going to read through the first one, but I want you to think in terms of some of the vaccine injuries and reports, VAERS reports that we've talked about and so forth, because here are some of the common symptoms, fever higher than 102, chills, feeling unwell, headache, fatigue, muscle pain. Those are all like the most common immediate side effects of these shots, right? Like that, even the even the pushers will tell you to expect that, that that's perfectly normal. Rash that is red and flat and covers most areas of the body. We've seen that. It looks like 
little uh, blood clots where the spike is bound to an ACE2 receptor. Shedding of the skin in large sheets, especially over the palms and soles, seen one or two weeks after the onset of symptoms. Guess what? We've seen at least a dozen cases of that. There's the lady that had her feet peeling off, their skin's peeling off. We've, I've shown you video after video of people that are experiencing exactly that. Low, <clears throat> low blood pressure, vomiting, diarrhea, increased blood flow to the mouth, eyes, and vagina, making them appear red. Now, that, that one I, haven't, I don't think I've seen. It doesn't ring a bell at all. Decreased urine output and sediment in urine. Decreased liver function, bruising due to low blood platelet count. There's another, lots of them are seeing low platelet counts, probably because their platelets are all being deployed, uh, responding to the spikes binding to ACE2 receptors in the vasculature, right? So it might be this, but it could be making this worse as well because both of these things could be going on, right? And then they're going on to another one. So, oh, and disorientation and confusion. Brain fog, anyone? Hello? So this is, you know, stands a good chance of being also what's happening to the people who took these shots and, and continue to take them. Their manufacturing process is deeply flawed and dangerous. Okay. So here he goes through all of these experiments, publishing his results, giving, you know, in-depth detail and this map and, and so forth. I don't want to go through all that. It's, it's too much, but I do want to give you some of his conclusions here. Previous RNA sequence-based estimates of the double-stranded DNA contamination in the vaccines significantly underreported the magnitude of the contamination. We demonstrate the double-stranded DNA contamination levels are a hundredfold higher and imply trillions of DNA molecules per dose. The DNA contamination equates to 25 to 35% of the nucleic acid in each vaccine being expression vector. The stuff that's going to go in and integrate with your genome and start spitting out uh, RNA. This is several orders of magnitude over uh, the EMA's limit of 330 nanograms per milligram. Uh, and unknown portions of these double-stranded DNA contaminants are replication-competent plasmids that can transform E. coli with a simple 22nd and 42-degree heat shock treatment. So could one of these things get in your gut and start pumping out a bunch more? How many GI? That's a very common vaccine injury. Could this be one of the, yet another pathology? Absolutely. There may, <clears throat> this may enable the mRNA to be expressed from these plasmids in mammalian cells, but unless these plasmids are integrated into the human genome, they are unlikely to be replicated to a high copy number. While bacteria are unlikely to express this spike protein, bacteria can replicate this plasmid and serve as a uh, source for introduction to human cells. Given the near equimolar contamination, studies evaluating the reverse transcriptase capacity of line one should be reconsidered. If each injection provides trillions of double-stranded DNA contaminants, line one reverse transcription activity is not a necessary step for genome integration. The critiques of line one predominantly expressed in cancer cell lines that the line one observation shouldn't be extrapolated then to patients. That, that's why they're saying, oh no, the whole line one reverse transcription theory is fake. That's, that's their, their reasoning. With these levels of contamination, 
reverse transcription activity from line one is not a prerequisite for genome integration anymore. So it just doesn't matter. It's happening. And now your children's children will have these patented genes in there that who knows, maybe the pharmaceutical cartels will decide they need a license to you because I mean, look, your boy might not even be here if it wasn't for those genes that we have in his body protecting him from COVID. And we're going to, we're going to need to get, we're going to need to get paid for that. Hate to do that, bro. But I'm going to have to charge you for that <laughs> to quote one of my favorite movies. All right. <clears throat> Quantitative PCR assays are now available. These may be helpful for screening blood, semen, serum, and other tissues for blood banks and fertility clinics concentrated with vaccine contamination. So what his work here has done has not only like laid out, here's four different ways you can go about this to confirm my results. He's laid out his methods. He's put his data out there. And now he's started publishing some of the specifics. I believe that's what this Circular diagram uh, right here is all about. So now they have these blood banks will have the markers and things that they need to start screening for contaminated blood, blood that's been contaminated with the spike protein with, uh, with this double stranded DNA with the, who knows what else? I mean, it's, it's so crazy. Okay. Uh, let me go on. Let me wrap up here. So comments regarding peer review, this article will be critiqued for not, uh, submitting to the search of, to the church of academic gatekeeping. This is what he calls peer review. The pandemic has revealed many of the warts on, of this process. You can read about how we transform peer review with Bitcoin on this Substack. So we're going to go look at that in just a minute, but I just want to wrap up here because what we're going through here. The opportunity here for humanity is to decentralize. It's, it's happening with the money. It could happen with science too. And blockchain can play a pivotal role in that because it is a um, immutable record, right? And that's how Kevin's uh, suggesting that it be used here in a minute. Okay. Presenting scientific work that contains an easy to verify or falsify hypothesis is the key to migrating to a more decentralized science. This work was careful to present a hypothesis that can be confirmed or falsified in a high school biology lab. All that's needed is an electro, um, paresis assay that measures RNA and DNA. And these results can be readily reproduced. The market will validate this finding long before traditional peer review even puts its boots on. Independent wet lab reproduction trumps three anonymous readers. That's the whole peer review process every time. And I think he's making an absolutely valid point here. And this is <clears throat> along the same lines of what the ethical skeptic talks about with his whole heteroduction needs to be part of accepted science, like that process of being able to put something aside of, you know, everybody knows and fill in the blank, being able to put that aside and say, these pieces fit better in this new model. And this model predicts what the old one is making up excuses for like dark matter and, you know, all sorts of other nonsense. So there are, I think people are waking up to this corruption and part of the opportunity here for us 
is to free knowledge and to come up with better systems that aren't controlled and manipulated by the drug cartels, by these corrupt and corrupted governments. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, let's go on here. I don't know if I want to jump back over here. Bear with me for one second. Okay, yeah, let's add add this in right here. This is from Jicky as well. He's saying, this is getting very dark very quickly. The SV40, a known oncogene, and, it's a, and it appears that vials may have been deliberately contaminated. The head of the regulators need to lawyer up PDQ. That's pretty damn quick. And <clears throat> what he's referring to here is a tweet from Kevin who went and did a further, I think it's an assay analysis, and that's what this is right down here. And uh, yeah, it's showing that there was clearly contamination in these things and maybe somebody knew it, like they did this on purpose. Just like what's happening with midazolam and that whole thing that John O'Looney told us about, that they were intentionally injecting people in the nursing care homes, that he was going there night after night after night, picking them up, wasn't going to private homes. Nobody was dying, not in the state-run nursing homes. And you can see this precipitous drop in occupancy all of a sudden. It's time to ask some really hard questions here, folks. I hope y'all are seeing that. Okay. And, of course, here's a study that Jicky found. And he's saying, you knew that putting plasmid in a lipid nanoparticle and injecting it into human, into a human is called gene therapy, didn't you? And he's got a link here in this tweet that is uh, pointing to a study that's behind a paywall. And he's taken a chart out of that study. And it's titled Gene Therapy with Plasmid DNA, which is exactly what they've just pushed into the arms of over a billion people while telling us that it's a vaccine, while jumping through the certification process for a vaccine, not a gene therapy. And this study came out, I think it was March or, uh, I think it was March of 2021. So they knew. And he says, <clears throat> don't worry, we can all stand down now. The nuclear incorporation of plasma DNA only happens during mitosis and me meiosis so it only affects the liver, the skin, the GI tract, sperm, oocytes, lymphocytes, bone marrow. He doesn't have space for the rest. So it's just gonna, it's also gonna get everywhere. Great news, isn't it? Of course, the hits keep coming. In regards to the trial, what he's found out, an ex excellent analysis by Josh Getznow and OpenVAET, who's still suspended on Twitter, of the missing local PCR tests in the Pfizer trial. Now, we talked about this a while ago. Remember, they were sending them back to the Pfizer lab for the uh, testing, for the, I don't know, whatever they do, processing, I guess. Just one really important bit of information to add. There were 207 missing local PCR tests, and he's pointing to this chart, okay? That 207 number is important, okay? So what they did, they had the centralized testing, which is send it back to New York and the Pfizer 
uh, people who have been committed of, uh, you know, fined billions of dollars for lying to the government and regulators and so forth. We can trust them to give us the results. And then they had the local tests, which were done by the team, like for instance, in South America. Well, there there's 207 tests that were missing local, but showed up in the centralized test. And he's pointing to this Substack article about the missing 207. I believe we covered this one. What it, <clears throat> sorry, what it shows is that that 207 number is exactly what needed to kind of disappear in order for them to get their 85% efficacy, I believe it was at the time. And Jickey's back here pointing out, every person who was symptomatic should have had a central test and a local test. The infamous Pfizer, quote, 95% prevention of infection was a farce, but how did they do it? The clue was here. It was a marker. So, and this was, oh, I'm sorry, you guys can't see that. This was the um, route that these nasal swabs went all the way from South America up to New York for them to do the test. Only the central tests were used in the NEJM paper and the submission to the US FDA who approved the drug the very next day as if they knew what the results of the trial was going to be. But it was the trial, but if the trial was genuine, there should have been no difference in the number of tests sent to both the central lab and the local lab, right? Like, why, why did these tests go missing? Bear in mind that if you had symptoms, your central test was not to be used clinically. Everybody should have had a local test. But as is typical for people, not everybody does what they should. However, the vaccine and placebo arms both sent central tests in at the same rate, showing that they didn't behave that differently. Okay. Yet there was a very significant probability of happening by chance, you know, 0.000055 difference in the rates of local tests being recorded in the database for the vaccine arm when compared to the placebo arm. In fact, the vaccine arm reported local tests at a 13.3% lower rate. You see what's happening here? <clears throat> now you have to take that rate uh, drop and apply it to the original number of participants that reported symptoms and sent into a central test and adjust for the less than half uh, testing rate. So that number comes out to the magical 207 vaccine patients missing in the local testing group. Quite odd, isn't it? By how many patients did Pfizer claim to see a benefit in their trial? 162 versus 8 gave you a 95% reduction in PCR positive uh, symptomatic disease. So 154 patients benefited, or did they? There were up to 207 missing patients in this exact group. So, Therefore, every single patient who supposedly was saved from COVID by the Pfizer vaccine appears to have been accounted for by the number of patients not registered as having a local PCR test, even though the groups were testing centrally at the same rate. And of course, the central test results couldn't possibly have been adjusted, could they? <laughs> Did they just lie to us and completely fabricate these results? Because it sure seems like it. If Pfizer... I mean, if Pfizer were performing them, didn't have any idea who, uh, whose sample was whose, did they? Of course, here's the, he's pointing to vintage cheese here. Once you realize that there is no biological reason for different codon optimizations to produce the exact same protein, 
you realize that it allows the manufacturers to tag any person that has had their product so they can test for it and find out whether you're vaccinated or not, I think is what he's saying there, or injected or not. And just to confirm that there was, in fact, almost certainly no difference in infection rates between the groups, if you have read this great independent work from this guy, and I think that's maybe what we covered, uh, it's definitely worth a read and a subscription. So the question should be asking is of Pfizer is, where are those 207 local PCR test results? Because it seems like they may have lied about them. Seems very, very likely. Of course, what are we faced with? What are they doing now? They're still pushing that the masks work. We've got this hit piece from the New York Times. It's an opinion piece. Here's why the science is clear that masks work. And I want to read this to you as an example to show you how they're whole scientific process is just manipulated and broken. Okay. And I think this is yet another perfect example. We're going to go through one with Fauci here in just a minute because he's been back out in the public eye, but I want to read you a few bits from this. The debate over mass effectiveness in fighting the spread of coronavirus intensified recently when a respected scientific nonprofit said its review of studies assessing measures to impede the spread of viral illness found it was, quote, uncertain whether wearing a mask or N95 P2 respirators helps to slow the spread of respiratory viruses. Sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Well, that created a bit of a stir. Quote, many commentators have claimed that recently updated Cochrane Review shows that masks don't work, which is inaccurate and misleading, which is an inaccurate and misleading interpretation, said the editor-in-chief. You know, the one who's closer to the people that secure the funding for her paycheck. She's coming out and saying now that, oh, no, that was misrepresented. Quote, the review examined whether interventions to promote mask wearing help to slow the spread of respiratory viruses. Given the limitations of the primary evidence, the review is not able to address the question of whether mask wearing itself reduces people's risk of contracting or spreading respiratory viruses. See? This was just a big misunderstanding. You can't even tell this information from the data. She said, quote, this wording was open to misinterpretation for which we apologize. I'm reminded of like that time Cheney shot that guy in the face and he was like, I'm so sorry to the Cheney family to have done this to them. <laughs> that is absolutely what we're watching here, folks. One of the lead authors of the review, now, you know, the people who actually did the work here, even more seriously misinterpreted its findings on mass by saying in an interview that it proved, quote, there is just no evidence that they make any difference, end quote. In fact, that statement, and we're back to the editor here, that statement is not an accurate representation of what the review found. <laughs> no, it's not. This was a flawed summary, further misinterpretation. They brought in fixer number two here, Michael D. Brown. He's a doctor, an academic and he's on the editorial board. He went ahead and made the final decision, you know, so it would be independent and all that. The review couldn't arrive at a firm conclusion because there weren't enough high-quality randomized trials with high rates of mask adherence. See, the, the data is just not good enough to make those assertions. Therefore, it doesn't, it's not saying that the masks don't work. 78 studies, 10 of those focused on when people wear masks versus when, when they don't. Five looked at how a uh, how effective different masks were at blocking transmission. 
The remainder involved other measure, measures aimed at lowering transmission like hand washing, disinfection. Of course, we know the nasal wash does the best job of getting rid of the viral load temporarily and can make a massive difference. They never once acknowledged that or promoted it, along with vitamin C or D. Of those studies, 10 that looked at masking, uh, the two that done, were done since the start of the COVID pandemic both found that masks helped. See, therefore, they work. To use randomized trials to study whether masks reduce a virus's spread by keeping infected people from transmitting a pathogen, we need randomized comparisons of large groups, like having people in one city assigned to wear masks and those in another not wear them. Oh, I'm so glad you asked because actually... Uh, I believe, well, if I can get it to change here, I believe that is exactly, oh, come on. Oh, I'm on the, no, why is it not? So let me ask you about. There we go. Okay. But it's still not showing up there. Why is it doing that? Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Oh, no, I just hit the wrong button. (laughs) I just broke the recording. (laughs) All right, here we go. I can do it this way right here. So here's one example of exactly what he's asking for. It's showing, you can't see it because I'm in the way here. Sweden versus the United Kingdom, pretty much the same. Looks like Sweden actually did a little bit better. Uh, You've also got Hungary right there, which didn't have the restrictions, did better than all of its peers. And these are the U.S. states that did a mask mandate versus no mandate. And you can see really didn't make much of a difference there. So, uh, yeah, thanks for playing. (laughs) All right, let me get rid of that. And get back to here. Okay. And then, of course, we've got this. Vicky, uh, what was her name? Vicky male, who is one of these researchers that's claiming there's no safety signal at all. Uh, they're not caught. She's not seen any increase in infertility or any increase in miscarriages or stillbirths. That's all crazy conspiracy theory. Well, the mole dug through, we're not going to go through this, but she's being funded of course, by these companies profiting off of this, uh, these products. So once again, another paid shill here to convince people that everything's fine. And it's the same, I haven't had time to really dive into it, but it seems that she's making the same claim of, well, that study was for efficacy. So you can't, you can't look at it for safety because it was designed for efficacy. But it's like, well, Vicki, they still had dead babies and you can count those. Ah, <sighs> Okay, it's, it's, it's sad. So what do we do about this? Well, Kevin's got, this is his blog again. He's got some solutions that I want to run by you to, that sort of will get you thinking about decentralizing science, peer review, this whole process, because it's all hopelessly broken, corrupt. The government can't be trusted with this. It has to be taken out of their hands, just like the money. Stop bitching, start building. This will repeat itself if we let peer review remain unchanged. We need to decentralize the peer review process so the incumbent advertisers and woke mob running these journals can't so easily weaponize them as tools of their cultish narrative. 
the problem is old as time, but it is, uh, but this time it is different. Distributed ledgers and crypto cryptography mitigate the pharma capture risks present in the existing scientific publishing market. We'd be crazy to leave that attack surface lying around for the next Fauci, uh, Fauci-centricity to take hold. And I think he's making a very valid point there. And so here's where he's basically put his money where his mouth is. He's created this sort of alternative peer review concept, okay? And I want to read a few excerpts from it. We believe this we believe a large part of this market dysfunction is a result of the peer review process lacking a price signal. Ludwig von Mises wrote very eloquently about this economic calculation problem in the socialist commonwealth. This work demonstrates the critical importance, uh, critical information pricing signals convey to the disastrous consequences that occur when prices are made illegal because the governments come in and they've monopolized the practice of medicine or, you know, what insert fill in the blank, basically. More peer review is performed for free by two to three highly specialized and valuable individuals donating their time. Free work is always deprioritized over paid work. Most reviewers are also anonymous. Now, he points out some journals are experimenting with a non-anonymous peer review, but we have to believe it's equally important to to experiment with bringing price signals into the peer review process. Prices can capture time value and urgency, like, you know, in a supposed pandemic. Prices can also reflect fairly straightforward in silico verification of primary data or even sponsor complete wet lab reproduction of the work. Exactly what he just did, right? It's important for peer review to have pricing signals so this market speculation can occur. Gold, silver, and bronze level reviews would help the reader to understand the magnitude of reproduction of the work. Without this important communication of value, free peer review by two to three very busy and specialized individuals will never be enough uh, to fact check the complexity of a manuscript with over a dozen specialized authors. We describe uh, the use of cryptocurrency because you got to not just read the paper, but check all the sources and see what they were saying as well. It's a, it's a huge process. We describe the use of cryptocurrencies to incentivize peer review to address financial conflicts that arise from directly paying for review. We utilize censorship-resistant blockchains to record all communication between the authors and the reviewers. Reviewers must stake their reputation on the review and must declare no financial conflicts Whoops, uh, in the review process other than the cryptocurrency incentivization for the review. Reviewers that simply rubber stamp questionable work will collect fees to collect fees will earn a reputation for sloppy work and unlikely to be hired again. So, This is a very important, a reputation rating, much like you have a credit rating, is a very important concept in a voluntary society, in a free market. You, what you do has to be out there, public, on a blockchain, and like you're staking your reputation on it. You know, when you're, when, just like with YouTubers, when they get something wrong, people are there to, to hold them to account and say, well, you said this, here's the video proof, just like we do with the politicians and elsewhere. Well, the peer review process doesn't have that. And I think what you would get are these various self-organizing collectives, as we've seen come to shape like Jiggy Leaks, like the mouse army and, you know, the, the whole drastic team, 
looking into the funding and source of the coronavirus. That has worked, and this is a way to sort of more formalize it. Incentives can be weighted for uh, an invitation and completion of the review in a timely and accurate manner. So it's just allowing more choice into the marketplace. I think it's a great idea. That's where it needs to head. We have to get out from under this monster because they are literally, as you've just seen, trying to kill us. They have injected people with like foreign DNA fragments that are highly likely to recombine into your genome. There's no process to get rid of that. And they knew it and they just didn't care because this is the kind of stuff that they're doing, right? What are we looking at here? Kansas seven day rolling average of daily cases per 100,000 in the population. This is the CDC study. And what you can see is in June and so forth. This was what? 2021, I believe. Yeah, I think so. In June, the separation between the counties with mask mandates versus the ones without were both pretty close. You can see with this first black bar over here, that's when they implemented the mask mandates and the two start separating. Now, of course, the orange, the, the counties that did the mask mandates likely to be a little bigger. So they started growing a little bit faster early on, but they shot way up through the mask mandates and then eventually peaked. And that's where we have this second line and drop down and then kind of level off. But they're still way almost double what the unvaccinated or the, the places without mask mandates were experiencing as far as cases per 100,000 of the population. <clears throat> so what did they do with this? Well, they produced this chart, which if you're looking at, you'll notice the lines, the gap between the lines has been eliminated because they went ahead and put two axes in. And of course, because they picked that start date, it looks like, wow, man, those mask mandates really worked. It dropped and then kept dropping without disclosing the fact that they're higher and still high. <laughs> and this is what they, they based their evidence that masks work. And now we have this New York times hit piece saying, and editors and, <coughs> People on the editorial team coming in and, oh no, those authors got it wrong. We're not hearing from the authors. They've, they've made their, their piece. This whole process is corrupt, folks. And, the, and people are dying as a result of what these monsters have done. And it's time to wake people up to these facts and hold these people accountable. 100%. So that was a little thread there from Elgato Mallow. Okay, let me see here. One more thing that came out, not so great news. Remember uh, Burkhart? Now he's one of the German pathologists we read. They did those, I believe it was 14 autopsies on people that had died suddenly. Only I think two of them were hospitalized. And I forget the number. Most of them, they definitely attributed to the vaccine. They, they did tissue samples and proper staining. And it was uh, Bakhti and Burkhart, I believe, that, that did this report. We've covered it a couple times on the show. Well, that's this guy. And now he's back with some more information about 
what he's seen in sperm. It shows that uh, actually we could confirm that the spike protein is produced in the deltoid muscles where the vaccine is, uh, is uh, uh, administered, injected. But we could show it in almost all organs, more or less uh, explicitly. And here you see a case uh, where we show the testes. And uh, you, you can see that uh, in this 28-year-old man who had a healthy son uh, and who died 140 days after injection, the spike protein is strongly expressed in the uh, spermatogenic uh, uh, organ in the testes. And you can see there are almost no spermatocytes in here. But uh, and uh, it's strongly expression of uh, uh, spike protein in the spermatoconic tissue. So uh, uh, also in elder persons, this is an old man, and you can see here's also a strong expression in the sper spermatogonia. There's no, uh, not one single spermatozoan in this, uh, and a strong expression of the spike protein. So if I may make a personal comment, uh, this is not a scientific comment. All spike, no sperm. So we looked at data, <clears throat> I can't remember how many months back it was, there was a study and it kind of suggested that women face a slightly higher risk. And I think now we know why, because they are getting uh, a, I, I don't know what word I can use here, an injection of spike protein that has ACE2 receptors on it that's going to bind all over the uterus, I guess, the walls, whatever, and cause apoptosis and cause who knows what other kind of problems and who knows what else the body is trying to shed and get rid of. Um, and I guess some of that comes back out. I don't know. I'm usually asleep by then. So uh, if I were a woman in fertile age, I would not Very plan a motherhood from a person, from a man who has been vaccinated unless. <laughs> I think these pictures are very disturbing, very disturbing. So. One of the top pathologists who's actually looked at this is saying, ladies, if you want to have children, you need to find someone who's not vaccinated. That's what he would tell his daughter. That's what I, I'm going to tell my daughter. And I think it'll be pretty obvious by the time she ever considers that. But this is really, really troubling. It should be extremely troubling what these people have done to humanity and we're seeing all the signs of it and yet <clears throat> there are still people out there telling us that nobody's been injured by these so-called vaccines that everything's fine that there's no safety signals remember the scottish hospital that had the safety signal trip not once but twice inside of a few months vicky doesn't i guess address that or probably you know has made up some excuses for the cartel masters that pay her salary. 
Okay. Oh, yeah, it's not looking good. All right. If anybody wants to jump in from spaces and comment on any of that medical stuff, do it quick because I'm going to move on. Otherwise, I think there's maybe a couple more points. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess we're going to get into the censorship. <clears throat> so, Fauci, okay, there's been a number of different hearings here with the, the politicians and so forth. Fauci's been out. He's been accused by the former CDC director of being excluded from the whole gain-of-function conversation. Is it, is it a lab leak? Is it natural origins and so forth? I want to play you some of these clips, and I think it's going to be very clear for you to see the ways in which Fauci is just clearly lying through his teeth. Okay. So Fauci's come out. Um, there's been these questions suggesting a lot of shenanigans going on. And he came out to defend himself, and we haven't heard from him in a while. And he did it on Neil Cabuto's show. So let me ask you about what Dr. Uh, Robert Redfield is charging, that you froze him out, that you didn't want him there, you didn't want him at these mm. meetings, and that was deliberate. You know, Neil, I really feel badly about that because I, I know Bob a long time. He is totally and unequivocally incorrect in what he's saying that I excluded him. I had nothing to do with who would be on that call. That call was organized by a group of evolutionary virologists in order to discuss the possibility that this might actually be a virus that was actually engineered. Now, people like this, he's choosing his words very carefully. He's saying, I didn't make the decision. Well, did you have any influence? Did you talk about this guy? Did he come up in the conversation at all at any point with these folks? I guess Neil doesn't ask him that question, but here's the other side of that story. Really, unfortunately, I was excluded from those conversations, uh, which I found retroactively very disappointed since I was obviously a virologist and very engaged. And I actually had asked Jeremy Farrar, Tony Fauci, and Tedros to have these conversations. And then to be excluded, I found unusual. I do think it illustrates one point that's worth really focusing on. When you, when you have a group of people that decide there can only be one point of view, that's problematic. And Propaganda. I'll keep going saying it's antithetical to science. And unfortunately, that's what they did. Mm -hmm. Exactly what they did. Okay. So his rationale of why he thought he was excluded is an invalid rationale. So it's really unfortunate that he made those statements. He's a good guy. I've known him for years. I'm so, I mean, I'm just really a little bit disturbed about why he said that, which it was completely untrue. Completely untrue. Isn't it strange how like everybody around Fauci is saying things that, that disagrees with him is saying things that are completely untrue, that they're all the liars and it's definitely not him. Three years ago, if you thought it came Listen from a this. lab, if you raised that, you were called a nut job. You got censored on Twitter. You were blacklisted on Twitter. You were even called a crackpot by the very scientist who in late January sent emails to Dr. Fauci and said it came from a lab. They called you crackpot. Is that yep. right, Dr. Redfield? I think the most upsetting thing to me was the uh, Baltimore Sun calling me a racist because I said this came from a Wuhan lab. 
Dr. Reptil, you, were, you, were, uh, you, you ran the CDC and you were on the coronavirus task force, is that right? Correct. That was formed on January 29th, 2020, is that right? Correct. Two days later, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Dr. Anderson which says what? Virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. Is that accurate? 100% that is accurate. We've seen those emails. Whoops. That's my understanding. From Next day, I know. Did he share that email with you, by the way, Dr. Redfield? No. As a member of the task force, as a head of CDC, did he share that email with you? No. Okay. Next day, February 1st, Dr. Gary sends Dr. Fauci another email. That email says, I don't know how this happens in nature, but it would be easy to do in a lab. Did you share that email with you, Dr. Redfield? No. You didn't no. see either one of those too. emails, even though you're head of CDC, even though you're on the coronavirus task force that had been formed just two days, three days earlier. No. Three days later, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, who told us it came from a lab and emails to Dr. Fauci that Dr. Fauci wouldn't let Dr. Redfield see, three days later, they changed their position 180 degrees. The question is why? That's a little odd, don't you Mr. think? Mr. Wade, why would they change their position that fast when the only intervening event is a conference call with Dr. Fauci, the guy who wouldn't let Dr. Redfield see the very emails that they had sent him, Dr. Redfield, head of CDC on the coronavirus task force. Why would they change their position, Dr. Wade, or Mr. Wade? Okay, before we get that answer, let's hear from Fauci again. So I didn't put anybody on the list of that call, nor did I take anybody else. So it's really unfortunate that in a public setting, oh, like the lying. hearing that Dr. Redfield oh, made that absolutely incorrect statement, the other thing well, he said that's interesting, then, Neil, who would he be said, on no, but, but Neil, did you decide to be on that call or did these other virologists? Neil, I just said it. I didn't have any. Did you have any conversation about Dr. Redfield with any of these people? Thing to do about the decision who would be on Not the call, the evolutionary virologist, Dr. Eddie Holmes, yeah. Christian Anderson, all of the others that want, they made the decision who's on the call. I didn't right. add anybody to the call, so nor you didn't did know I going extract call, anybody doctor, from the call. You didn't know going into the call that the CDC director would not be part of that call. Do you think he should have been? Uh, well, I mean, retrospectively, it would have been okay to have him on the call, of course, but I didn't put him or take him off. Yeah, okay. Well, here's the answer as to why these two scientists that had both sent in emails to Fauci saying, look, man, this, this looks lab created to me. Suddenly, three days later, completely changed their tune. Looking at the timeline on um, May 21st, um, just uh, a few weeks after the Nature, Med uh, the, the Nature Medicine article had come out, uh, two of the signatures of the original email to uh, Dr. Fauci, that, that's Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, were awarded a $9 million dollar grant for the... So there's research. $9 million reasons why they changed their mind. I knew you'd get to it. I read that last night. Three months after, so three days after they say it came from a lab, they changed their position and the only intervening events, a conference call with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, again, a call that Mr. Redfield was not allowed to be on, the head of CDC and on the coronavirus task force. And then three months later, shazam, they get nine million bucks from Dr. Fauci. Well, isn't that something? Magic. Magic. And he definitely didn't have anything to do with excluding Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, from that call. Look, listen. I will say, if you go back and look, it's declassified now. And I'm sure you all have your classified. Because remember, 
he just he didn't have any valid points to make there was nothing to it what he was saying the injections were ridiculous in briefings but the declassified information now in september of 2019 three things happened in that lab one is they deleted the sequences it was highly irregular and you remember it was the like the sequences of interest because we we read an article or a, a substack i think about that sort of breaking it down it was like the <laughs> the ones that had matches we found out later so researchers don't usually like to do that mm -mm. second thing they did was they changed and i think it was at the request of uh bat lady of of she changed the command and control of the lab from the civilian control to the military control highly unusual and i've been involved in dual use labs when i was Heard in the that. military and the third thing they did which i think is really telling is they let a contractor redo the ventilation system in that laboratory. That's in the WIV. Remember, they, we talked about that. We showed you the invoice where they brought in this, this contractor to come in and upgrade the filtration system where this thing supposedly escaped. So I think clearly there was strong evidence that there was a significant event that happened in that laboratory in September. It's now been declassified. You can read it. I'm sure there's more classified information around. And there's another, I guess I may have cut this segment out, but there's another segment where he's explaining, I think this was to Marjorie Taylor Greene in his testimony, about how it is uh, something that has human uh, genomics in it. I forget exactly the wording that he used, but it, it had this sequence in there that would apply to humans, make it infectious to humans, but how did that come from a bat? You know, really, it should have been bat to human infectious, not human to human infectious. But because this sequence was in there, that's that's you know one of the dead giveaways that no, this thing was a lab created bioweapon. And it's really disturbing that in a public hearing of a congressional hearing, he makes an accusatory statement that has no basis whatsoever in reality. But None. another point, Neil, None. that's important. He said in his own mind that he was kept out because he was of the opinion that this might be a lab leak. Half the people on the call were of the opinion that it might be a lab leak. Right. The two guys that you bribed with $9 million, dickhead. <laughs> I mean, do you not see what a complete fraud these people are? They are just lying through their teeth at this point. They have absolutely nothing to lose. And they are going to do everything they can to get away with this. They don't care how stupid they look. The, the, the situation is so clear. The data are firm. If you get vaccinated, you are protected, even with the Delta variant, which, by the way, has a greater capacity to spread from person to person. And when you're infected, it has a greater likelihood of giving you serious disease. We know that as a fact. These are facts, ladies and gentlemen. And Fauci has never gotten the facts wrong, except for all of those and everything that he just said. But aside from that, never gets the facts wrong, and it's everybody around him. They are the liars, not Fauci. Not Fauci, okay? You understand? <laughs> all right. Oh, I didn't see anyone raise your hand wanting to talk or ask questions or bring up anything related to all that COVID stuff that we just did. 
Um, I want to move into censorship, but if somebody wants to chime in, go ahead and do that quickly and we'll, we'll jump to it. Uh, I want to go to the hearings that had uh, Matt Ta- Taibbi and, oh gosh, the other guy's name, Jake, what is it? No, Michael Schlesenberger. I really loved what they had to say, and uh, it was pretty stunning watching these um, deep state chills come out on the attack. All the so-called Twitter files really showed was a discussion on content moderation and that we only got a fraction of the discussion. This is a false narrative. We're engaging in false narratives here, and we are going to tell the truth. Now, you crossed that line with the Twitter files. No. Elon Musk, it's my time. Please do not interrupt me. Elon Musk spoon-fed, Elon Musk spoon-fed you his cherry-picked information, which you must have suspected promotes a slanted viewpoint, or at the very least generates another right-wing conspiracy theory. You violated your own standard, and you appear to have benefited from it. Before the release of emails, of the emails in August of last year, you had 661,000 Twitter followers. After the Twitter files, your followers doubled, and now it's three times what it was last August. I imagine your Substack readership, which is a subscription, increased significantly because of the work that you did for Elon Musk. Now, I'm not asking you to put a dollar figure on it, but it's quite obvious that you've profited from the Twitter files. You hit the jackpot on that Vegas slot machine to which you referred. That's true, isn't it? I've also reinvested You've made a lot. some... No, 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 no. Is it... Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, I have my mic muted. I, I don't know how much I'll miss, but... Uh, you, you see the absurdity of her comments. She's trying to... Oh, this is taken out of proportion. This is not an accurate representation. Pay no attention to any of this. Now she's coming in saying, well, he's motivated by profit. Look how many more followers he got and look how much money you made. Your, your following tripled as a result of this. So you are compromised and in on it. And what he points out is, no, I haven't made money. It's basically a wash because he's sort of distinguishing, well, my company makes the money and then pays me some, but instead of me getting paid more, what I did is I went and grew the company and now have more people working for me with that money so that we can do more and bigger things, right? And so he has not benefited personally, his company has, but she wants to make that into an issue. True that you have profited since you were, rece- you were this recipient of the Twitter files. You've made money. Yes or no? I Very think it's probably question. a wash, honestly. Nope. You've, you, you have made money that you did not have before, correct? But I've also spent money that I didn't have okay. before. I just hired a I, whole I, group of people a, to invest. Patently obvious research. answer, reclaiming my time. Attention is a powerful drug. Eyeballs, money, prominence, attention. All of it points to problems with accuracy and credibility. And the larger point, which is social media companies are not biased against conservatives. And if anything, they ignored their own policies by allowing Trump and other MAGA extremists to post incessant lies, endangering public safety, and even our democracy. Hypocrisy <laughs> is the hangover of an addiction to attention. So we had a hearing the other day on Twitter, and we had uh-huh. four witnesses, three for the majority, one for the minority, and all four testified under oath they had never received a request for content moderation or takedown by the Biden White House. Well, it must but be true they then. Did from 
Donald Trump's White House. Mm. And specifically, uh, the case brought up was an exchange between Donald Trump, then President of the United States, and Chrissy Teigen, uh, where she, you know, they, he had called her something and she called him something back. I won't repeat it. What we see in the Twitter files is that Twitter... Ex- so did you catch that? What he was claiming is, well, it's not Biden censoring. It's Trump because he made this one request, which Twitter denied and didn't delete as far as I know anyway. So like what is he's trying to equate one request from Trump of a personal nature, which they turned down with targeted coordinated censorship by multiple government agencies, including this whole CISA thing. The informations are that they fired and then just created a secret star tribunal, I guess, to go after the, the dissenters, the divergents. They got to hunt them down and silence them. Executives did not distinguish between DHS or CISA and this group EIP. According to their own data, they significantly uh, targeted more dis- what they call disinformation on the right than on the left um, by a factor, I think, of, uh, of about 10 to 1. <laughs> so the reality is, no, it's not. The Twitter, you know, the study that, they, that she was, he was citing was one that Twitter did. And one of their government-funded groups put together to show, oh, see, no, it's definitely liberals that are the ones being silenced so that the mainstream media could take that lie and run with it. But yet, when they actually looked, it was 10 to 1 in the other direction. Again, Congresswoman, that would... uh, I just need a date, sir. Now they're trying to get a source. Unfortunately, because... This, this is a question of sourcing, and I don't give up. I'm it's a journalist. A, I don't reveal my source. It's a question of chronology. No, that's a question because of sourcing. Because you earlier said that, that someone had sent you through the Internet some message about whether or not you would be interested in some information. Yes, and I refer to that person as a source. So you're not going to tell us when Musk first approached you? Again, Congressman, when so you're asking me to, re- you're no. asking a journalist to reveal so a source. So then you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this? <laughs> no, now you're you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I I, I, well, I just can't answer your question. Well, he is or he isn't. Oh, she's caught him. If you're telling me you can't answer because it's your source, well, then that the only logical conclusion is that he is in fact your source. Well, Brilliant. you're free to conclude that. Well, sir, I just don't understand. You can't have it both ways, but let's move on. No, he can't. He's a journalist. No, he can't because either Musk is the source and he can't talk about it, or Musk is not the source. And if Musk is not the source, then he can discuss. No one has yielded. The gentlelady's out of order. So you see what they're trying to do here? They're trying to trap him with questions that will force him that he's. They think he should be required to answer under oath. Uh, so that they can identify Elon Musk because they want they want his head before them. Of course they do, right? And they want to be able to punish him because he's the one that turned the, uh, I don't know, released the Kraken on Twitter, essentially. 
you don't get and to she's speak out of order because he not he's not recognized. Him. Recognized. You're not recognizing my time. He has not said that. But he has said it. Everyone is talking loudly. The fact that Democrats are pressuring him to do so is such a not. We're asking him about his conversation. We are all shouting. I have not yielded an exchange from the Trump White House. So I have seen one from Congressman Schiff and one from Senator Angus King. Yeah, nice try. We're talking about the Trump White House. Uh, and people. So he's talking about other people that have been targeted, and the guy's like, "Oh, nice try, nice try, pal." Under oath, confirming it. And my question is: In the Twitter files, did Elon Musk or Twitter provide you with that exchange with Chrissy Teigen? Now this was the whole Trump request, and he's like, "Did you get those documents?" And he's like, "Well, I wasn't searching for that document because we found this giant iceberg of government censorship." that our queries were designed to target and pull keywords from? No, um, it, it, but that's probably because the, the searches that I was making. Well, probably probably because it didn't confirm the bias that this is yeah, all about, as yeah. the gentleman from Texas would say, the left attempting to uh, control content when, in fact, the evidence is the Trump White House most certainly attempted to control content. By making one request, and that is far, far worse than the FBI, CISA, uh, the CIA, who knows who else, sending Homeland Security, probably, I don't think the CIA is on the list, but Homeland Security agencies, all sending in <clears throat> massive ban lists and prohibited topics to be enforced as policy on Twitter to silence dissent. Not even because they were wrong, as we're going to see. Twitter. Because I honestly hope that you will grapple with this. Mm -hmm. That it may be possible that if we can take off the tinfoil hat. Oh, we're conspiracy that there's theorists. There's not a vast conspiracy. Oh. But that ordinary folks and national security agencies responsible for our security are trying their best to find a way to make sure that our online discourse doesn't get people hurt or see our democracy undermined. And the very rights that you think they're trying to undermine, they may be trying to protect. These are, just, these are good people. They're trying to help everyone. And you guys are just crazy conspiracy theorists who have gone off the deep end. There's nothing to see here with any of this. There's no mass, uh, there, there's no coordinated effort to censor anyone except for Trump. His administration was clearly doing this because we have this one example. <laughs> And they're serious. Like, that was the, them coming out on the attack. It's just like, oh, good God. What are you people, what are you idiots doing? In, um, in your There's discussion, in your answer, you also said that you were invited by a friend, Barry Weiss. My friend, Barry Weiss. So this friend works for Twitter, or what is, what is her? Um... She's a journalist. Sir, I didn't ask I'm you a question. You. I'm, I'm now asking Shut Mr. Schellenberger a question. Shut yes, ma'am. Barry Weiss is a journalist. I'm sorry, sir? She's a journalist. She's a journalist. Do so you work in concert with her? Um, yeah. Do you know when she first uh, was contacted by Mr. Musk? I, I don't know. You don't know. So you're in this as a threesome? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was many more people involved than that. <laughs> many more people involved with it. Uh, man, sounds like I need to get a job as a professional journalist getting wild. In his 1961 farewell address. All right. 
So here's their opening statements. Um, this is Schellenberger. I want you to hear what he's got to say, because I, I think they both did a great job with their opening statements. President Dwight Eisenhower warned of, quote, the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. Yep. Eisenhower feared that the size and power of the complex, or cluster, of government contractors and the Defense Department would, quote, endanger our liberties or democratic they processes. Do. How did he mean that? Through, quote, domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money. He feared public policy would become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Eisenhower's fears were well-founded. Today, American taxpayers are unwittingly financing the growth and power of a censorship industrial complex run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. I'm grateful for this opportunity to offer this testimony and sound the alarm over the shocking and disturbing emergence of state-sponsored censorship in the United States of America. The Twitter files, state attorneys general lawsuits, and investigative reporters have revealed a large and growing network of government agencies, academic institutions, and non-governmental organizations that are actively censoring American citizens, often without their knowledge, on a range of issues. I do not know how much of the censorship is coordinated beyond what we have been able to document, and I will not speculate. I recognize that the law allows Facebook, Twitter, and other private companies to moderate content on their platforms, and I support the right of governments to communicate with the public, including to dispute inaccurate information. That's right. But government officials have been caught repeatedly pushing social media. But there's a huge difference between putting out your truth, your facts, and silencing others from sharing theirs. The platforms to censor disfavored users and content. Often these acts of censorship threaten the legal protection social media companies need to exist, Section 230. If government officials are directing or facilitating such censorship, notes one law professor, it raises serious First Amendment questions. It is axiomatic that the government cannot do indirectly what it is prohibited from doing directly. Moreover, we know that the U.S. government has funded organizations that pressure advertisers to boycott news media organizations and social media platforms that refuse to censor and or spread disinformation, including alleged conspiracy theories. The Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and Graphica have all inadequately disclosed ties to the Department of Defense, the CIA and other intelligence agencies. Uh, I guess they it work was with the CIA. multiple U.S. government agencies to institutionalize censorship research and advocacy within dozens of other universities and think tanks. It is important to understand how these groups function. They are not publicly engaging with their opponents in an open exchange of ideas. They aren't asking for a national debate over the limits of the First Amendment. Rather, they are creating blacklists of disfavored people and then pressuring, cajoling, and demanding that social media platforms censor, deamplify, and even ban the people on those lists. The censorship industrial complex combines established methods of psychological manipulation, some developed by the US military during the global war on terror, with highly sophisticated tools from computer science, including artificial intelligence. The complex's leaders are driven by the fear that the internet and social media platforms empower populist, alternative, and fringe personalities and views which they regard as destabilizing. Federal government officials, agencies, and contractors have gone from fighting ISIS recruiters and Russian bots to censoring and deplatforming ordinary Americans and disfavored public figures. 
Importantly, the bar for bringing in military-grade government monitoring and speech-countering techniques has moved from, quote, countering terrorism to, quote, countering extremism to countering simple misinformation, otherwise known as being wrong on the Internet. The government no longer needs a predicate of calling you a terrorist or an extremist to deploy government resources to counter your political activity. The only predicate it needs no is simply either. the assertion that the opinion you expressed on social media is wrong. These efforts extend to influencing and even directing conventional news media organizations. Since 1971, when the Washington Post and New York Times elected to publish classified Pentagon papers about the war in Vietnam, journalists have understood that we have a professional obligation to report on leaked documents whose contents are in the public interest. And yet in 2020, the Aspen Institute and Stanford Cyber Policy Center urged journalists to, quote, break the Pentagon Papers principle and not cover leaked, leaked information to prevent the spread of disinformation. Government-funded censors frequently invoke the prevention of real-world harm to justify their demands for censorship, but the censors define, farm, define harm far more expansively than the Supreme Court does. Increasingly, the censors say their goal is to restrict information that delegitimizes governmental, industrial, and news media organizations. That mandate is so sweeping that it could easily censor criticism from any part of the status quo, from elected officials to institutions to laws. Congress should immediately cut off funding to the censors and investigate their activities. It should mandate instant reporting of all conversations between social media executives, government employees, and government contractors concerning content moderation. And finally, Congress should limit the broad permission given to social media platforms to censor, deplatform, and spread propaganda. No, no. What we need is not more government interference. What we need is a government that has been gutted essentially. As we go through this, I'm going to kind of weave that in and let you guys see kind of what I see as the root, root cause here, especially when we get into some of the banking stuff. This is a government-created problem, and these things are just all, everything that they're seeing that they've run into is just a natural evolution of big government. My name is Matt Taibbi. I've been a reporter for 30 years uh, and a staunch advocate of the First Amendment. Much of that time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, ranking member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the IF Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> uh, I'm now the editor of the online magazine Racket on the independent platform Substack. I'm here today because of a series of events that began late last year when I received a note from a source online. It read, are you interested in doing a deep dive into what censorship and manipulation was going on at Twitter? A week later, the first of what became known as the Twitter Files reports came out. To say these attracted intense public interest would be an understatement. My computer looked like a Vegas slot machine uh, as the, just the first tweet about the blockage of the Hunter Biden laptop story registered 143 million impressions and 30 million engagements. But it wasn't until a week after the first report, after Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, and other researchers joined the search of the files, that we started to grasp the significance of this story. The original promise of the internet was that it might democratize the exchange of information globally. A free internet would overwhelm all attempts to control information flow, its very existence a threat to anti-democratic forms of government everywhere. What we found in the files was a sweeping effort 
to reverse that promise and use machine learning and other tools to turn the internet into an instrument of censorship and social control. Unfortunately, our own government appears to be playing a lead role. We saw the first hints in communications between Twitter executives before the 2020 election when we read things like flagged by DHS or please see attached report from FBI for potential misinformation. This would be attached to an Excel spreadsheet with a long list of names whose accounts were often suspended shortly after. Uh, again, Ranking Member Plaskett, I would note that the evidence of Twitter government relationship includes lists of tens of thousands of names on both the left and right. The people affected include Trump supporters, but also left-leaning sites like Consortium and Truthout, the leftist South... It's not left versus right, red team versus blue team for these people. It's, are you challenging the narrative or are you going along? That's really all they care about. You know, um, what was it? V for Vendetta or, you know, one of those movies. They, he wants to hold up how many fingers. And the answer is not three. It's however many I tell you. That's what they want. They want to program you in such a way that you will accept whatever is offered to you as fact. The Chaco rations increasing by 5% when reality they actually cut it. But don't worry, Winston's there to go back and change all of the old newspaper stories to make it look like everybody's getting 5% more when they're actually getting 20% less. That's the world that they're taking us into with these kinds of organizations with people doing these kinds of things. This is so important. Look at what they did with COVID. They would be totally getting away with it right now if it wasn't for people like me and Jicky and uh, Brooke Jackson and uh, thousands of others. Thousands of us have stood up and spoke the truth and faced the consequences for it because it was the right thing to do and they want to systematically snuff that out. South American Channel Telesur, the Yellow Vest Movement, that in fact is a key point of the Twitter files, that it's neither a left nor right issue. Following the trail of communications between Twitter and the federal government across tens of thousands of emails led to a series of revelations. Mr. Chairman, we summarized and submitted them to the committee in the form of a new Twitter files thread, which was also released to the public this morning. We learned Twitter, Facebook, Google, and other companies developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from every corner of government, from the FBI, the DHS, the HHS, DOD, the Global Engagement Center at State, even the CIA. For every government agency scanning Twitter, there were perhaps 20 quasi-private entities doing the same thing. And these private entities funded by the government, a lot of them. And of course, what are these uh, apps doing? If you leave your location on, they're collecting that, sucking that right up and throwing it in their database and then turning around and selling it to the governments because the governments could never collect that kind of information. That would be completely illegal. But if they can just buy it from the corporations, then that's perfectly fine. And now they've set up this reporting platform to centralize censorship. 
across social media to target individuals, to target wrong think, because that's exactly what they're doing. Including Stanford's Election Integrity Partnership, NewsGuard, the Global Disinformation Index, and many others, many taxpayer funded. A focus of this fast-growing network, as Mike noted, is making lists of people whose opinions, beliefs, associations, or sympathies are deemed misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. That last term is just a euphemism for true but inconvenient. Undeniably, the making of such lists is a form of digital McCarthyism. Ordinary Americans are not just being reported to Twitter for deamplification or deplatforming, but to firms like PayPal, digital advertisers like Xander, and crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe. These companies can and do refuse service to law-abiding people and, and businesses whose only crime is falling afoul of a distant, faceless, unaccountable, algorithmic judge. As someone who grew up a traditional ACLU liberal, this mechanism for punishment and deprivation without due process is horrifying. Another troubling aspect is the role of the press, which should be the people's last line of defense in such cases. But instead of investigating these groups, journalists partnered with them. If Twitter declined to remove an account right away, government agencies and NGOs would call reporters for the New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets, who in turn would call Twitter, demanding to know why action had not yet been taken. Effectively, news media became an arm of a state-sponsored thought policing system. It's just not possible to instantly arrive at truth. It is, it is however, possible, becoming uh, technologically uh, possible to instantly define and enforce a political consensus online, which I believe is what we're looking at. This is a grave threat to people of all pers political persuasions. Uh, the First Amendment, an American population accustomed to the right to speak, is the best defense left against the censorship industrial complex. If the latter can knock over our first and most important constitutional guarantee, these groups will have no serious opponent left anywhere. If there's anything the Twitter files show, it's that we're in danger of losing this most precious right without which all democratic rights are impossible. And there's a reason they rolled it out with the election that they hijacked. You know? Very quickly, we discovered that we had FBI agents uh, basically, and, and go other government officials, you know, demanding that Twitter take certain actions. We now know that the Department of Homeland Services, uh, which has uh, had, what's that? Security. Security, sorry, <laughs> Department of Homeland Security, uh, you know, had, had to try, try to create a disinformation board. Uh, that went away after public backlash, but we now realize that they have this other mean. enterprise and they've been building out basically mechanisms to proliferate a censorship industrial complex around the country to censor on a whole range of issues. And so, so you've seen them did it you've behind seen this back. censorship industry go from, well, we're just fighting ISIS to, well, we're just fighting Russian disinformation bots to, well, now we need to fight domestic misinformation, which is just saying we need to fight against people who are saying things we disagree with online. That's all that means. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's not a slippery slope. It's an immediate leap into a, a terrifying mechanism that I, we only see in totalitarian societies of attempting to gain control over what the social media platforms are, allow, are allowing. And so, um, yeah, for me, it's just, it starts at DHS, but we basically see... Um, there is very little stopping them if they're able to pull this off.
very, very little. Almost every government agency involved in this. That the money was paid to censor information, take down posts, suspend accounts, or do anything to, to relating to content. Okay, now we're talking about the, I think it was the $4.3 million that the FBI paid to Twitter. Moderation, is that correct? It is. This. Thank you. But honest reporting would have explained that the $3.4 million was paid to release information, not censor it. One of my colleagues on this panel repeated your distortions and told Americans this reimbursement was used to, quote, censor certain stories. That's a flat-out lie. Mr. Schellenberger, are you aware of Section 2706 under the Stored Communications Act? It says when social media companies comply with subpoenas, warrants, or court orders, it costs them money, so they get reimbursed. The FBI makes these requests and reimbursements to discover evidence and run relevant to a criminal investigation. Let me repeat that. The FBI makes these requests to help catch the bad guys. That helps keep child predators off social media sites. It helps keep violent criminals oh, off our see. streets. I support the FBI and our law enforcement agencies. It would be nice if our Republican colleagues FBI. did the same and not fabricate explanations for pavements that are defined for clear purposes in federal law. My time is just about wrapped up. May I respond? The truth is that social media yep. companies are unregulated monoliths. They pose danger to individuals. They allow posts that bring harm. Of course, the social media companies were fine when it was the Wokeians in charge of Twitter. That was okay. It wasn't until Elon took over that then they became a problem. Arm, and that's the bottom line. My understanding from those files is that Twitter had decided not to take that money until recently. So if you read that email, uh, what Stasha, I believe, the person that sent it, is saying is that they started taking money after previously not taking it. And I believe that the reason that they had not taken it earlier was because they did not want that financial conflict clouding mm -hmm. their relationship. Mr. Chairman, the money is payment under He's federal law order. so that they can the gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Bishop, is recognized for five minutes. material that they've been asked. I thank the gentleman. Richard Stengel, you know who that is? Yes, he's the former, uh, the first head of the Global Engagement Center. I want the American people to hear from him for 30 seconds. Listen to this. Basically, every country creates their own narrative story. And, and, you know, my old job at the State Department was what people used to joke as the chief propagandist job. We haven't talked about propaganda. Propaganda, I'm not against propaganda. Every country does it, and they have to do it to their own population. Every country does it. Every country does propaganda, and they have to do it to their own people. And he's the guy in that Stingle position. Said. If I understand correctly, he was the head of the, of, the G, of the Global Engagement Center at its creation, right? He was, and in his book, um, Information Wars, there's, there are a number of passages where he talks about creating a whole-of-government solution to the information problem. He hastened to say that he didn't want to create any, a, quote, information ministry, but what he was describing roughly approximates that. The FTC's first demand in that first letter after the Twitter files come out is identify all journalists, I'm, I'm quoting, identify all journalists and other members of the... Okay, so what happened here is after the first one was published, the FTC came after them and they wanted details on all the journalists that Twitter was talking to and have you run background checks on them and all this stuff. A private company shouldn't have to give those kind of details to the government, right? You see what's happening here? Media to whom Twitter worked with. You find that scary, Mr. Taibbi, that you got a federal government agency asking a private company, who in the press are you talking with? Yeah, I, I do find it scary. I, I, 
I think it's none of the government's business what, uh, which journalists a private company talks to and why. Um, I think every journalist should be concerned about that and the absence of interest in that issue by um, uh, my fellow colleagues in the mainstream media is an indication of how low the business has sunk. Uh, there was once a real esprit de corps and camaraderie uh, within media. Whenever one of us was uh, gone after, we all kind of rose to the challenge and supported. Used to be. Yeah. Used to be the case. Um, that is gone now. Uh, we, we don't protect one another. You know what another. else used to happen? Democrats used to care about protecting First Amendment free speech rights too. Now it's like, okay, if you're attacking, and I said this on the House floor, I said, don't think they won't come for you. Oh, the, the, the big tech, big media, the cancel culture, they may come for Republicans and conservatives now, but they never, the mob is never satisfied. They That's will right. keep coming. By request from the FBI, and in fact, they, they gave each other a sort of digital high five after one batch saying that was a monumental undertaking to clear all of these. But she noted that, that she believed that, that the FBI was essentially um, creating, doing word searches keyed to Twitter's terms of service, um, looking for violations of terms of service, specifically so that they could make recommendations along those lines, which we found interesting. Do you believe it's the FBI's responsibility to police the terms of service for a private company? I do not. I, th I think you cannot have a state-sponsored anti-disinformation effort. Of course, we know why they were doing it. They were protecting the laptop story, the one they were sitting on and not releasing and not doing anything about while creating a lie, a narrative, that it's Russian propaganda and selling that to the social media companies in order to push this ban in the first place and influence the election, which they've admitted they did. Um, and also, without directly striking at the whole concept of free speech, I think the two ideas are in direct conflict. Uh, and this right. is a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of a lot of the people who get into this world. Some of them, I believe, in a well-meaning way. I think they, they're actually trying to accomplish something positive. But they don't understand what free speech means and what happens when you do this, it undermines the whole concept um, that truth doesn't come from, uh, isn't mandated, that we arrive at it through debate and discussion. Well, in fact, wouldn't you agree with me that the First Amendment is broader than Twitter's terms of service? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And wouldn't you also agree with me that the FBI is responsible for complying with the First Amendment, not Twitter's terms of service? I would hope so, yes. Of course, what is the politician doing there? Well, the government's power trumps that of the private companies, which is exactly not what you should be agreeing with. Because in a free market, there's no one to force everyone to do a certain thing or not do another thing. Right? In a truly free market, people get to do what they please, what they choose, if they're, as long as they're not hurting anyone else. But if the government is allowed to step in and say, thou shall not, then you don't have freedom. And I want you to look at this right here as well. Let me blow this up for you guys. <clears throat> this is from the CISA person that you heard on the phone. And you can, I want you to listen to this quote. It says, one could argue that we're in the business of protecting critical infrastructure and the most critical infrastructure is our cognitive 
infrastructure, i.e. how you think. We now live in a world where people talk about alternative facts post-truth, which I think is really, really dangerous. Alternative facts post-truth. Like, we've already told them what the truth is, and now here are these people coming up with things that contradict what we've told everybody. That is very, very dangerous, according to these people. Uh, if you pick their own, if you, if people get to pick their own facts, <laughs> pick your own facts. They're literally telling you they should be able to decide f- truth from fiction, and you shouldn't have that ability to discern that for yourself. What are you in that system, folks? And this is CISA. This is what's at the head of this viper that's threatening your freedoms and liberties, that's in a a full-out, ongoing war. In 2020, Twitter commissioned an objective study to examine whether its algorithms disproportionately promotes conservative or liberal voices. This was a massive study by researchers from the University of Cambridge and Berkeley. The analysis examined millions. The study results were quite clear. Twitter's algorithms actually amplifies conservative voices far more than liberal voices. So whatever comes of this question about pressure from the federal government, at least up until 2020, it didn't have an effect. Whatever you may be trying to uh, tell us, the effect on Twitter didn't happen. Um, no, uh, I no, don't agree. Excuse me, it's my time, thank you. No matter how crazy, how offensive a post might be, these private companies presumably must advance the lies, conspiracy theories, personal attacks promoted by radicals. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure that if the Democrats held a hearing today to force Fox News to post certain content, my Republican colleagues would be up in arms. And this is particularly ironic because we know for a fact that Fox News does spread disinformation. Oh, And does yes, so while knowing that the material is But false. not CNN, MS, MSNBC. Private companies, I mean Twitter, Facebook, they can ban whoever they want. They can mute. They can deplatform. That's right. They can set up whatever policy they want, and they have the ability to do that. I don't care about that. I agree with But remember, the other Congress critter is talking about, well, you believe in the government's power that the free speech trumps Twitter, right? What is she setting up there? The idea that the government gets to regulate speech inside of corporations, that they get to dictate policy. That. They should have that authority. The thing that we're concerned about is when the federal government, by proxy, essentially contracts this out. Because the federal government can't ban speech. They can define time and place, but they cannot ban content. And anyone would be foolish to think that when the FBI comes to a private company and highlights speech, and then would expect them to do nothing, of course they would respond to that. The FBI knew they would respond to that. The FBI expected them to respond to that. 
And I, I could use a couple analogies if I could, and they sound dramatic, but they're exactly right. It's illegal for the United States to assassinate a foreign leader. It would be illegal for the United States to pay $3.2 million to someone to go assassinate a foreign leader. Okay. It's illegal in some cases for the United States, or not illegal, but we would have to have a policy debate whether we would invade another country. Oh, wait, it would no, be no, illegal. no, you've done that many, many times without any kind of debate. For the United States to pay a private company like the Wagner Group in Russia to go and fight their battles for them. Uh, wait, what, wasn't that the whole crack epidemic where the CIA was bringing in drugs through Arkansas and distributing on the east and west coast, created the whole crack cocaine epidemic in the poor communities, and then used that money to fund the Iran-Contras guerrilla warfare going on somewhere else, like you just described? So, <sighs> And that's exactly what the FBI did here. Well, this is nothing new for them then, is it? Because they've been playing this game for a long time. The CIA, the FBI, all completely corrupt and rotten, top to bottom. The Pfizer trial data said no such thing. In fact, it, there was no support for that claim. So I called up the head of the CDC, recorded the conversation, the head in Washington, D.C. She said she'd get the top scientists on the line. There was a snowstorm that day, so I was impressed. She got this top scientist on the line. They said I was Eagle Eye Massey. They couldn't oh. believe how that statement had made it into their report and that I was absolutely correct. There was no support he caught for them, it. and they're going to fix it. So uh, I said, how are you going to fix it? You're going to redact it? You're going to change it? What are you going to do? They said, we'll do all of that. I said, great. A month later, it was still on their website. I made oh, some more phone calls. About that? They brought in a, an old hand, they an old fixer, Dr. Shushat. These are her notes with, uh, of, of her phone call with me about natural immunity. Just quickly, we, we found just yesterday a tweet from... Um, the, the Virality Project at Stanford, which has partnered with a, new, a number of government agencies on Twitter, where they talked explicitly about um, censoring stories of true vaccine side effects mm -hmm. um, and other Why? true stories that they Bad felt for business. Uh, encouraged hesitancy. Now, the important... Censoring true. Yeah, so they used the word true three times. Uh, in this email, and what's, what's notable about this is that it reflects the fundamental misunderstanding of this whole disinformation complex, anti-disinformation complex. They believe that ordinary people can't handle uh, difficult truths, and so they think that they need minders to separate out things that are controversial or difficult um, for them. And that's, again, that's wow. totally contrary to what America is all about, wow. I think. I'll just briefly add, this is very disturbing because what they're doing when they're putting these labels on there is they're actually also trying to discredit you. So it's That's not right. just, uh, it's a form of censorship, but it's also a, a disinformation campaign. And I think what Matt said is really important to understand. I mean, we... Because all the believers, that's what they would do over the last, you know, year one, year two of this is they would, oh, look, this guy's been debunked. He got He's not a doctor anymore because the licensing board was weaponized against them or whatever. And they would always, always use that. Oh, he's discredited or some other nonsense so that they could throw the baby out with the bathwater and not have to consider these alternative points of view. That's what they are trained, propagandized 
to respond. That's how they're propagandized to respond. Is what it comes when from, down you to. go from a, a situation where we were fighting ISIS recruiting, and then it was Russian disinformation, and now they're in a situation where they're wanting to censor true information, accurate facts, because they're worried that people might behave in ways that they don't want them to, that involves mind reading at a level that is grossly inappropriate. Mind control. I mean, I, I worry even about making this defense because let's remember, least. the First Amendment protects our right to be wrong. Mm -hmm. It protects our right to lie. I mean, it's bizarre to me that we would need to make a defense of the First Amendment and remind people that we have a right to be wrong. And being wrong, as Matt was explaining, is a big part of being a human being and having a democracy protect the First Amendment because our, our country has the best protections for reporters in the world. Um, but this right kind of thing Assange. where the government is looking for information about reporters, it's usually a canary in the coal mine that something worse is coming in terms of uh, mm -hmm. an effort to exercise control over the press. And so on that level, it's, it's absolutely disturbing. Also, the Aspen Institute report that we, we uh, published today, uh, talked about today in the Twitter files thread, um, ex one of their recommendations was that the FTC be empowered uh, to, get, uh, to have unlimited power to search uh, all data of uh, private companies so that they could more freely and more accurately search uh, the speech of ordinary citizens. Yeah, so there's actually two things, and one of them we just discovered recently, which is that there was a Stanford uh, Cyber Policy Institute report, which said that, which was in menacing terms, telling journalists that they should abandon the Pentagon principle. Again, this is the, the Pentagon Papers principle. This is the idea that if, if Daniel Ellsberg brings you materials he's taken from the Pentagon about how the war in Vietnam is going, the New York Times and Washington Post published those. That was considered one of the greatest moments of American journalism. Here you have Stanford Cyber Policy Center saying, we should abandon that principle. You should instead make the issue about, you know, frankly, the theories about where it might have come from. Then you had, this, then you had the Aspen. Programming and propagandizing the youth, the up-and-coming up generation, to, to be able to further control the narrative. And eliminate these outliers because that's what this is you know the whole thing around westworld you had the divergence or i guess i can't remember if they were outliers or i think they were divergence who are the people that were causing problems in the mass psychosis that was going on waking people up to hey something's wrong here and so that's what they're trying to shut down and shut out and control programming the reporters to think a certain way that's advantageous to them is the, uh, another step in that process. Workshop, which was attended, by the way, by New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, Wikipedia, Facebook, Twitter, many other journalists, where they basically, you read it, it's like a kind of programming of the journalists that they should not follow this long-standing journalistic principle of taking materials from a hack and leak or any other situation and take them seriously. So, I mean, you read this and it feels like a kind of brainwashing exercise that Aspen Institute and Stanford were, were, were running against American journalists. We respond to COVID because they were secretly blacklisting people like Jay Bhattacharya.
And I think mm -hmm. to the bigger point that Americans are concerned about when it comes to the weaponization of government, this isn't Republican or Democrat issue, this is an American issue. You had individuals, millions of Americans, who in many cases were being mandated to take an experimental vaccine, and when those that wanted to consider taking it were trying to make an informed decision, you had opinions that were being silenced because it didn't fit a specific narrative pushed right. by the Biden administration, correct? Absolutely correct, and that's why we use the language of disfavored ideas and disfavored people, because it doesn't fall neatly among left and right lines. If there's anything going on here, it tends to be a more of a disproportionate blacklisting of, of more populist voices, um, or just right. ideas that we would consider slightly outside of um, the Overton window, the mainstream the, opinion at the, the time, agenda, but the, the Overton window moves. And Correct. so the idea that you're just going to narrow the entire, what's acceptable on social media to what is mainstream at the time would basically freeze us and not allow the society to progress and to, for knowledge to grow and for the democracy to function. With the 14 seconds that I have left, Mr. Taibbi, if you'd like to weigh in on any of this that we have talked about and why this is a direct threat to Americans today, yeah. I would appreciate it. Just quickly, again, we yesterday discovered this email talking about the suppression of people telling their own stories of, uh, stories of true vaccine side effects. So these are people who are telling about their own experiences, things that, are hap that happen to them that are true, and they're being suppressed because what anti-disinformation does is the opposite of what the press does. They are aiming for what the narrative is, and they already know in advance what they're looking for, whereas a journalist mm -hmm. goes into a story, does not know what... Like, give me uh, different ways heart attacks. Strange and unusual ways heart attacks uh, can be triggered. When we're seeing all those stories, folks. The truth is, we often find that the thing we expect to find turns out to be completely different. They know in advance what they're looking for, and that's why this is so dangerous. My time is Okay, so it's coming out, but what's going to come out, we already know. It's not like this is a big secret here. It was the DOD, DARPA, you know, the whole Project Defuse that a number of people have been working on to uncover all of the components that went into this SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, Barrick, who played a role, uh, Dazic from EcoHealth, who was actually the one that went over to investigate the origins of, of COVID-19. And guess what he did? He hired his Facebook fact-checker buddies, took them over there, told them, you know, we don't, we, we need to really focus on a zoonosis theory and don't need to look at, at this whole lab leak theory. Let's just not even consider that. And guess what they figured out, what they concluded. <laughs> and then that became fact. That became the narrative. And anybody who challenged the narrative got silenced. So, it, you know, it just, it went on and on. Are they, are these people ever going to do anything about it? I, I don't think so. I don't think you should have too much faith in them either because I don't see that happening. Of course, you do want to be careful. Like here's somebody that probably Mississippi man going to prison for threatening CDC and Fauci over COVID vaccine. He said uh, he left voicemails for Dir Director Rochelle Lewinsky that were, quote, threatening in nature. Now, what did he say? Were they actually threatening or is it something that they're able to twist into because, I mean, look at the way they've behaved. They're literally murdering people and lying about it to ring the cash register and line their pockets. 
Do you think they're not going to twist the facts when it comes to you? So, yeah, think, guys. Think. Be smart about this stuff. All right. Let's go on to the whole banking sector here. I want to start right here with a thread from Chainlink God, who is, I'm smiling because we've gotten into it a few times over Chainlink, have a slight difference of opinion on it. But he has put together, I think, an absolutely excellent uh, timeline of events in crypto that kind of contributed to what's happening now with the banking sector. And so I want to read this to you. Uh, I really enjoyed it. First, he says, Terra U.S. dollar collapsed, a massive Ponzi scheme where investors were promised 20% APR on their U.S. dollars, $20 billion in U.S. Uh, T and $40 billion in Luna was wiped out. You remember the owner was, the founder was cashing out and so forth. This caused the largest crypto hedge fund to go insolvent due to excess leverage that 3AC uh, had, which was $3 billion in assets under management that were wiped out. 3AC had borrowed money from all the largest crypto lenders, each of who went insolvent after bank runs inevitably occurred, causing a market-wide credit crunch. Celsius, $12 billion under management, $1.2 billion deficit. Voyager had $1.6 under management and $670 million default. BlockFi had $3.9 billion under management with $400 million in revolving credit. Voyager and BlockFi were bailed out by FTX Alameda, but turns out they were a complete fraud too. That's the same Sam Bankman-Fried. With $10 billion of customer funds siphoned from FTX to cover Alameda's losses, a bank run took place, creating a second contagion wave, leaving Voyager and BlockFi wrecked again. Of course, uh, BlockFi, they're in bankruptcy proceedings, and uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, right here. Oops. Uh, per the new bankruptcy filing, BlockFi has $227 million in Silicon Valley Bank. The bankruptcy trustee warned them on Monday that because of those funds are in a money market mutual fund, they're not FDIC insured. So this is the money that uh, was supposed to be paying people back, and it's gone. Well, not really. It's not as bad as everybody thinks as we're going to go through here. Okay, so uh, he goes on here, let me see, with $10 billion of customer funds siphoned from FTX to cover Alameda's losses, a bank run took place, creating a second contagion wave, leaving Voyager and BlockFi wrecked again. Genesis Lending under the DCG conglomerate also went bankrupt due to Alameda FTX exposure. It was a $3 billion shortfall. Gemini was lending $900 million in customer funds to Genesis, so they and their customers inevitably got wrapped up in the mess, too. No doubt TradeFi is involved in this all, too, within the collapse of the two banks that were key banking partners for crypto. Silvergate, this is FTX's banking partner and, uh, and partner, FTX's banking partner and ran a payment network for crypto exchanges, experienced a bank run and collapsed after losing $1 billion on bonds. Now that's the real issue that we're gonna we're gonna get to. While uh, SVB Silicon Valley Bank's 
Circle's banking partner for USDC and most tech startups experienced a bank run and collapsed after losing $1.8 billion on bonds. Not so much bonds, but mortgage-backed securities. Okay, They didn't learn from 2008. They were doing the same thing. And what Chainlink is pointing out here is you have all of these crypto companies that are circling money around with each other. And none of them really have a sound business model. It's the whole dot-com all over again. Not looking too good for Signature Bank either, which runs other bank payment network, which runs the other bank payment network for crypto exchanges. Can't forget the SEC trying to strong arm the industry by shutting down Kraken, uh, Kraken staking product to calling Paxos stablecoins a security and shutting down BUSD and much, much more. Notice he's not mentioning XRP because he hates it. <laughs> Various banking regulators also strong-arming banks into refusing to onboard crypto companies as clients, forcing them overseas, and to use sketchy counterparts. Anyways, have you heard of liquid staking derivatives and restaking? Pretty cool financial engineering right there. Crypto innovation never stops. And I really like uh, the way that sort of lays it out. So you can see how it's all of this fraud that's just so rife in the crypto space that has contributed to this sort of contagion going around and bringing down all of these crypto companies. And I think we're going to see a lot more of them fall victim to this before all is said and done. But was it crypto that brought down Silicon Valley Bank? No, not at all. Okay. For that, I want to go to this Bill Ackman thread. Now, Bill runs a, a company perishing square they buy stakes in companies that are not controlling stakes but enough that they can kind of throw their weight around and make some improvements and get a better roi for themselves he's got a pretty good take on this that i want to read for you so and go through and share some thoughts on as well he starts out the government has about 48 hours to fix now this was yesterday to fix a soon-to-be inversion irreversible mistake by allowing SB, SVB finance to fail without protecting all depositors, the world has woken up to what an uninsured deposit is. All un, unsecured, illiquid claim on a failed bank. So, I, I mean, I guess the government that runs the schools, they're not teaching people about insured accounts. Absent J.P. Morgan City or Bank of America acquiring SVB before the open on Monday, I... Pro, prospect I believe a prospect I believe to be unlikely or the government guaranteeing all of SVB's deposits the giant sucking sound you will hear will be the withdrawal of substantially all uninsured deposits from all but the systemically important banks what we've called the sci-fi systemically important financial institutions these are the too big to fails right SIBs these funds will be transferred to the SIBs the U.S. Treasury money market firms and short-term U.S. treasuries. So what he's saying there is, well, we've got to have the government come in and bail everybody out. Now, how are they doing that? Well, they're going to print it. So we've got to have the government rob everybody of a little bit of their wealth in order to bail out this company that made some bad choices here. He goes on, there is already pressure to transfer cash to short-term U.S. Treasury and the U.S. Treasury money market accounts due to the substantially higher yields available on risk-free U.S. Treasuries versus bank deposits. 
So what he's pointing out there, short-term treasuries, and that's really what triggered this whole thing, okay, and why it is far, far, far from over. What did these guys, what did Silicon Valley Bank do? They started getting billions and billions in deposits as they became kind of this preferred uh, tech crypto um, bank, banking partner, okay? And they needed yield on that. So what did they find? Oh, the good old mortgage-backed securities from, you know, the 2007-2008 housing collapse. So they put billions of dollars into those, earning, I think, 1.5%. And then all of a sudden, the Fed comes in and starts raising rates up. And now the tre- the long-term treasuries and this 1.5% on these uh, MBSs, mortgage-backed securities, which, again, that's that Jenga tower of dog shit where they layer in all these crap loans with a few good ones and then get the rigged rating agencies to give it AAA, even though it's not anywhere close to AAA, but doesn't matter because everybody doing it is getting rich. <laughs> so they bought into that. And then short-term rates start paying better. Well, guess what? They have to sell it. But when you go to sell that pile of dog shit that's only earning you 1.5%, guess what? And people can go and get 4 or 5%. Nobody wants it. So you're selling at a steep discount. In their case, a $2.2 billion, or I think $2.3 billion discount. And that's what triggered this whole thing. Okay? It was them making bad bets because why? Well, the Federal Reserve created these artificially low interest rates that the market shouldn't support. Why did they do that? They needed to keep the velocity of money up because they were printing so much of it. They needed it to move. So they've created this whole thing. They drug out that policy for far too long. There really shouldn't be a policy. They shouldn't exist. But in this paradigm, they do. Okay. And this was inevitable. In fact, I I think I've got a quote from Peter Schiff where he's saying exactly that he's been talking about this happening for a long time because it's predictable that this could bring it down. That when they have to raise those rates, you end up with a a better situation with short-term debt than the longer-term stuff that should be paying better. And like I said, they're not the only bank involved in this. Well, that's what this is right here. This just came out. U.S. banks have over $620 billion in unrealized losses, according to the FDIC. So what does that mean? Well, Silicon Valley Bank, they're not the only one that put their money in these mortgage-backed securities. And it's all over a half trillion dollars across all the banks that they have losses that they haven't recorded on the books because they're still recording their bonds as well, they're worth this much when real, the reality is they're worth $620 billion less than they think that they are. And it could be even more than that. And they're going to be forced to liquidate just like Silicon Valley as time goes on. And what Bill's pointing out back here is the whole issue with the systemically important banks, the SIBs or the SIFIs. They're the ones that are going to be protected while everybody else dries up. 
And so they're, they are going to enact a policy that will drive further centralization and an even bigger crash. Because this is, you know, like I get where Bill's coming from, but at the same time, this is kicking the can. What he's advocating here is kicking the can down the road. And we've got to stop. It just keeps getting worse. Uh, okay, these withdrawals will drain liquidity. He's talking about leaving the small banks, going to the big banks. Will drain liquidity from community, regional, and other banks that begin the destruction of these important institutions. Now think about the context that all of this is happening in because there's this company, blockchain company, that has this product that takes all of these small regional community credit union banks and so forth and puts them, plugs them into the global financial system in a way that gives them equal footing with JP Morgan Chase, but without the extra 100,000 in headcount that runs JP Morgan's Chase's system. So what do you think they're going to do? That system's coming. They can't delay it. They can't stop it. But now all of a sudden, the dominoes start falling and the government starts moving in a way that is going to wipe all of these people out. Do you think that this is really an accident? Or is this by design? Is this to shut out the competition, wipe them off the map so that they can keep us enslaved with their systems of control, with their hierarchy, with their extra costs? The increased demand for short-term U.S. Treasury will drive short rates lower, complicating the Federal Reserve's efforts to raise rates to slow the economy. So, you know, what the Fed has to do is raise rates. I mean, we're talking, they're, I don't know what now, three or 4% something. We're talking 14, 15 plus percent, if not higher, maybe 20% is where it needs to be. But, well, they're going to have to back off of that because it won't be sustainable because they will crash the banking system if they keep going. They are between a rock and a hard place, and it's like raise raise interest rates. We crash the banking system, destroy the economy, lower interest rates, hyperinflation, assumes the dollar, and it's game over. And the time that they can ping back from one to the other is shortening and shortening. That's the situation that we're in. I hope you understand the significance and the magnitude of it. Okay. Already thousands of the fastest growing, most innovative venture backed companies in the U S will begin to fail to make payroll next week. Now there's news about this. They're doing a 50%. Everybody at Silicon Valley bank is getting 50% of their money that they had in their accounts credited back to them. And then they're going to settle up the remainder. I don't know if it's 20%. I don't know if it's 80% what they're going to get or the, the, the remaining 20 or 40% something like that. Um, wires were going through right up until the cutoff point that the FEC or the uh, FDIC stated. So, you know, everything seems to be going. You've got uh, bank employees that are still working and, and helping customers trying to sort of navigate what's going on, even though they don't really know themselves. So it's not looking terrible. And the shortfall, I think, is manageable. So, 
there the room there's a lot of rumors now as far as what's happening behind the scenes but of course they're scrambling just like they did in 2007 and they're hoping to emerge out of this with a buyer yeah. and and <clears throat> this is what's so interesting as well right is i think crypto gives us all of these mirrors to what's going to happen to the dollar right when when all of this went down tether the, the price spiked to like a dollar four dollar seven i can't remember exactly what it was meanwhile usdc the one that actually has bank accounts and and cash in reserve everybody fled that one and moved back over moved over to tether and paid a premium for it of course i guess for some reason they think tether's better despite not really having bank accounts and reserves and engaged in criminal enterprise and so forth but I'm, that's fine let's not talk about that Okay, so I don't see, you know, there's a lot of stories out there. I think the government is bending over backwards to stop this and sweep it under the rug as best they can because they understand that right there, that this is far from over, that there's a lot of these banks in trouble, and they are just going to print their way out of this just like they did in 2009, 2008, 2009. Okay. Had the government stepped in on Friday to guarantee SVB's deposits in exchange for penny warrants, which would have wiped out the substantial majority of its equity value, this could have been avoided and SVB's 40-year franchise value could have been preserved and transferred to a new owner in exchange for an equity injection, free money, right? We would have been open to participating. This approach would have minimized the risk of any government losses and created the potential for substantial uh, profits from the rescue. Instead, I think it, it is now unlikely any buyer will emerge to acquire the failed bank. The government's approach has guaranteed that more risk will be concentrated in the SIBs at the expense of the other banks, which itself creates more systemic risk because it's further centralizing the system. And they are going to gut this sector that's about to be on a level playing field with the big banks, but not have all the overhead. Do you see what's going on? And all of this, of course, this is why I did all three of these. All of this is happening in the background. They're trying to implement this censorship regime that uh, defines what's, what's the, the allowable truth based on whatever narrative they want to push. At the same time, all of the truth is coming out about these COVID injections and the deaths that they're causing. And now all of a sudden the banks are going to crash. I'm sure it's, and take out the competition before we have to migrate to a new system of a level playing field. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the government, let's see, creates more risks. So for those who make the case that depositors be damned as it would create moral hazard to save them, Consider the feasibility of a world where each depositor must do their own credit assessment of the bank they choose to bank with. Yeah, Bill, I can, I can imagine that. It's, it's called cryptocurrency, or I am the bank and I don't need them. I don't need any of this. This problem is solved. What we need to do is adopt it and get away from it, but you don't want to do that. You want to kick the can down the road and keep this monstrous system that supports endless war, censorship regimes 
and a financial prison that they're building all around us with the $600 transactions and KYC AML requirements that currently that are constantly being ratcheted up. So you always have to jump through more hoops like the email from Uphold. Do you know this person? What does that have to do with my identity? Fuck off, Uphold. I think they closed my account. I guess they're going to keep my crypto. I don't know. Um, yeah. They, they, they're not stopping, folks. There is no get the right people in here to fix this. Do you see the magnitude of the problem? Do you see how far gone we already are? Do you see what they're planning here to bring all of this down while they ramp in their new system that is a total control paradigm that's going to enslave you and your children and their children into this dystopian nightmare of right think and wrong think. That's where this goes. But, uh, you know, I mean, it would be hard if depositors had to consider the feasibility of a world where each depositor must do their own credit assessment of the bank. Maybe we just fuck the banks. Maybe we, we decentralize banking and become our own banks. What do you think about that? SVB's senior management made a basic mistake. They invested in short-term deposits and long-term fixed-rate assets. Therefore, short-term rates went up and the bank run ensued. Senior management screwed up and they should lose their jobs. The FDIC, Gov, and OCC also screwed up. It is their job to monitor our banking system for risks, and SVB should have been high on their watch list with more than $200 billion of assets and $170 billion of deposits from business borrows in effectively the same industry. The FDIC, and of course, <laughs> firing the executives, uh, firing the head of the FDIC, or that's, that doesn't fix this. It's a failed system. The government's failing at accountability too. Just like everything else they try and do. The FDIC and the OCC's failure to do their job should not be allowed to cause the destruction of thousands of our nation's highest potential and highest growth businesses and the resulting losses of tens of thousands of jobs for some of our most talented younger generation. Well, I mean, like, where does this end? How long do we kick the can down the road? How much debt should we accumulate before we finally call it a spade? Because the longer we push this out, the worse it is. Do you want to hand this over to your kids and let them suffer through the greatest depression they've ever known? Because, I mean, it would be hard for people to figure out how to do this. Let's just go along with the government that's trying to control us and enslave us and tell us what to think. and be able to unplug us from society with the flick of a switch, with the entry into a ledger that then goes out to all these companies that they control and blacklists you. That's where this is going. This administration is particularly opposed to concentrations of power. Ironically, its approach to SVB's failure guarantees duopolistic banking risk concentration in a handful of SIBs. Chase, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citi, 
everybody else get bent. We don't need you. You remember the bearable guy picture when they're all playing poker? This is the game being played at that table. So here's the reality. Depositors should get back about 98% of their deposits, but eventually is too long when you have payroll to meet next week. So Monday, the rumor is they're going to have 50% of their accounts reinstated. The cost of a government guarantee of SVB deposits would be minimal. On the other hand, the unintended consequences of the government's failure to guarantee SVB deposits are vast and profound and need to be considered and addressed before Monday. Otherwise, watch out from below. So what is he advocating there? The people who engaged in irresponsible gambling with their customers' money, they need to be protected. And they love, you know, here's another commentator pointing out, Brian Sullivan of CNBC, he wants to point out here, this will not be a bailout like 2008. The talk is backstopping the depositors, not the shareholders of the stock. Well, guess who you're backstopping? The fucking criminals who made the bad bets in the first place and lost, who took the customers' funds, gambled with them, and lost. How is that different from what FTX did? If anything happens, it would be backstopping the people and the companies who had their money in SVB, not rescuing the stock or execs who paid themselves millions. I mean, sure, they'll keep their job and they no longer have to figure out how to come up with that $2 billion because it's just been stolen from all of the existing dollar holders when they printed those up to uh, deposit them in the account. And I mean, they can just keep printing money forever, right? SV, SIVB uh, execs need to answer questions for why they held such long-term bonds as rates soared and no chief risk officer for months. Well, I mean, the government regulates them. But depositors are a different story. See, we need to take care of the depositors. And of course, in doing that, guess what? You're taking care of the criminals who created the problem. You're backstopping them too. It's just, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Speaking of Circle, USDC, so there was a lot of rumors floating around. They have $40 billion in reserves. Uh, $11.4 billion was in cash, and I think they had $3.3 billion on deposit with um, Silicon Valley Investment Bank. I think they're going to be fine. Uh, Ripple has come out and said they have uh, money in Silicon Valley Bank, but it's not the majority, so less than 40% of their cash reserves, which is a billion dollars. Last time I looked, it's probably maybe a little less now. So that could be pretty significant. I mean, they were going to give a statement on what they lost like two hours ago, but they haven't given that. wonder why. But everything's fine, folks, because Circle, they've got money held in all these banks like Silvergate, which is dead, Silicon Valley, which is dead, and Signature, which is next in line, but going all the way up to to B, uh, BNYM or New York Bank Mellon, Bank of New York Mellon, sorry, which is a, a pretty big bank. So, and they've got a few others there as well. Yeah, I think they're going to be fine, but 
the rest of the industry. It's not circle. It's not crypto that caused any of this. It's the Fed's policy of 0% interest rates of easy money that went on far too long that they shouldn't be allowed to manipulate that's creating this problem. And what else drives it? You know, I talked, you had, uh, let me see here. Lauren Bobert here. Absolutely, positively, no bank bailouts. Taxpayers have zero responsibility to bail out irresponsible banks. Uh, Lauren, what responsibility do people who run the government have to not spend the money? A video that I posted, this was back in 2007, okay? And it was a Ron Paul sine wave meetup that I did in in, uh, the Dallas area years ago. And somebody there had a sign that said, U.S. debt, national debt, 10 trillion dollars and it was you know really long signs like four poster boards put together to get all the zeros on there yeah here it is right here and this is that picture and you can see the sign 10 trillion dollars this was actually my first very first youtube video they got a couple thousand views and i'm like holy crap Maybe I should make videos or something. (laughs) Anyway, it took 230 years for the government to accumulate that $10 trillion in debt. This was the whole Ron Paul when he was running for president. Well, fast forward, and we've got this report here from Hedgeye. We originally published this cartoon with $22 trillion in debt. Uh, below in February of 2019. So that's about 12 years later. It took them 230 years to spend the first trillion dollars and then 12 years to spend the second $10 trillion. Of course, now, just four years later, the national debt's $31.6 trillion. So that we went 240 years, 12 years, four years, And of course, what's the plan? Oh, right here. U.S. on track to add 19 trillion in new debt over 10 years, which means it's probably going to be 25 to 30 trillion dollars over 10 years because, well, I mean, emergencies, right? And when the politicians can only justify spending money that they get to dole out to their friends, well, turns out they're very good at figuring, finding emergencies that need immediate attention. And by attention, I mean your wealth because they're just going to print it up and take it. And this will never end. This cycle will keep collapsing until the money becomes so abundant that it's worthless. This is the end game. They know they're in it. This is why they're letting the banking system collapse. Okay. They will not contain this. They will kick it down the road and make sure everything looks okay for a while, but it's going to fall apart because like I said, they're in between that rock and the hard place of they should be raising interest rates, which will crash the economy, but they're not going to raise interest rates, which will trigger hyperinflation as they are adding tens of trillions of dollars in new money, flooding the marketplace, competing for the same, for a 
decreasing supply of goods and services. Why? Well, it goes back to COVID. We've got 560,000 dead, excess deaths, working age people, a lot of them. So everything is continuing to grind down to a slow halt. And, you know, it just, it's not, it's not going to stop. These people don't have the answer. They can't fix this problem because they, they don't even want to acknowledge it. They don't want to acknowledge that they're responsible for more debt than is possible to pay back. And that's, that's the situation that we're in. They didn't fix 2008. As Gerald Salente says, they just papered over it. They just printed money to cover up the problems without addressing them. And now they've kicked the can and kicked the can and kicked the can. The problem's bigger and worse. And you can bet that they're going to bring in their solution to push on you that is total enslavement. CBDC, new financial controls, let's do away with cash. So you have a credit at the company store and they can turn you off, silence you, deplatform you through their automated systems whenever they please. While everybody around you is programmed with right think. They are going to be programmed to believe that you are crazy for questioning any of this and you're a danger to our democracy. Isn't that what they say over and over? Isn't that their new mantra? It's a danger to democracy. So that's where it's going. Fun, huh? Oh, yeah. And uh, well, let me see if there's... Yeah. Okay. Let me go to here. There's some good news coming out of the Biden administration. They had three minority, first time in the office women in the Biden administration. That apparently counts for a lot. And one of them is Cecilia Rose. She is the economic advisor to Biden. She is going to navigate us out of this crisis. We're going to be able to count on her. She's just been put in the job. Let's see what she had to say, shall we? What we can see is that until we get the pandemic under control, the economy is going to struggle. So we need to ensure that we help the households, the businesses, the state and local governments. That you crippled with all these lockdowns and mandates. So you created the problem and now you need to help them. But, you know, didn't help them all, did you? You did this plan that ran out of money and only helps the ones that were really good at filling out the paperwork and a bunch of criminals who just defrauded the system. That are trying to get through this pandemic. We need to make sure that we minimize the harm to individuals, businesses, and states. The president-elect has, we recognize that the package that Congress passed is a really important to help us get to the next stage in this crisis, but it's just a down payment. Just a that down we payment. know that the we're going to need another twenty trillion over the next ten years, and by twenty we mean thirty. <laughs> individuals are still going to need additional support because we know that the unemployment rate is still maybe, likely to be elevated. Maybe a universal basic income, huh? How about that? 
States are struggling to, we can see with the vaccine rollout in terms of our first responders and our health response. And then we need to get teachers back into schools. This report showed that state and local governments lost about 50,000 jobs and that educators, our teachers, those that support our schools, we had losses of 20,000. So in order for women in particular to get back to work, we know that children have to get back to school. So the president-elect will be putting together a package that will address these various concerns to help us all get to the to the other side of this pandemic. Uh-huh. It's going going really swimmingly too. Great job, great job. So there's your new economic advisor who is going to bravely navigate these troubled waters. We are in good hands because she is the first black woman in that position. And if that doesn't qualify her to navigate this crisis, I don't know what would. I mean, maybe if she were trans as well um, and um, non-binary, then we'd really have something. But hopefully we can get by with just like the first black woman in the job. It'll be fine. (laughs) All right. That's it. That's what I wanted to cover. This has been a long one. Um, All right. I'm going to talk about food sources because this is an important thing to understand. And uh, we don't want to listen to that. Sorry, guys. Part of this whole thing, this is why for years I've been telling you guys, get physical silver, have it in your possession, have cash, hold, buy and hold crypto off the exchanges because this whole system runs the risk of structurally collapsing under its own weight. And part of that means disruption in supply chains, disruption in food sources, on and on, all right? And even if you have, like we have chickens out at the farm and eggs and, you know, can turn those into meat real easy. But what happens if the grain production gets disrupted? And then you can't feed the chickens. And then how are you homesteading? So there's, it's going to be very difficult. And I think a lot of like, I've, I've also worked farmers markets. I raise chickens, uh, you know, 500 batches of 500 at a time, multiple times a year and sold them at the Dallas farmers market. Um, I know some of the local farmers and they don't have produce year round. Like the grocery store does. It just doesn't happen. At least that's here in Texas. It gets too hot in the summer. And a little bit too cold in the winter. I mean, of course, you can do greenhouses and so forth. But we're going to see massive, major disruptions. And so, like, one of the strategies is long-term food storage. To be able to ride this thing out until society sort of finds its way again and, and is able to come out the other side. Because we're heading into a massive, massive storm here that's going to be far worse than anything that happened in 2007, 2008. They won't be able to just keep printing the money to fix this. This whole system is going to come down on its head. And the the only question I have is just how bad is it going to get? How much is it going to fall apart? How much is going to cease to function, cease to exist? Because, yeah, we have dollar death. We have hyperinflation on the horizon. We've got demand destruction from uh, all of these uh, people who are dying from these shots. And then we've got, yeah, you know, like money printing out the wazoo. And 
we're also going to have a lot of people scrambling for cash. I talked about the waves coming in, the tide comes in, leaves a bunch of crap on the beach, goes back out, and you go through and pick through, like, you know, when Hertz had to liquidate its rental fleet during COVID. That was the the time frame my mom went and bought a new car and got a great deal on it. And then what happened? Cars got real expensive. Well, guess what? All of those consumer products and stuff that people don't have to have, they're about to get real cheap. Just like those mortgage-backed securities that uh, the Silicon Valley Investment Bank needed to liquidate in order to cover the bank run that was triggered based on, sounds like, the were the rumors spreading around on Twitter, which were true. They were not solvent and they were incurring losses. And there's another 600 billion of those losses floating around in the U S banks. And the situation is probably the same all over the world. This is going to be global because countries all over injected their people with this shit, with this poison. We're going to see, we're already, I think seeing declines in birth rates I covered in a show uh, the guy who basically studies what happens when the population growth turns negative and how it really spells a depression. That's, you know, set the death of the global reserve currency aside for a moment. And of course, again, all of this is coming together right as this new paradigm of crypto sits on our doorstep and they definitely don't want to go that route because they lose control completely and there's no way they are literally planning on sp- on printing 20 trillion dollars in it in less than 10 years you think they're going to ever be able to survive on bitcoin <laughs> come on folks all right that's it i'm going to wrap us up there thank you guys for joining this show um yeah prepare i mean those of you that have been listening, you've already bought silver, probably some silver shot, which is going to be, I think, great, potentially. You've got some cash, not in the bank, not in the bank. That's the key. Um, and you've got some supplies because it's all going to be up in the air. You know, you, you've heard all the stories about people not being able to pay their paychecks, pay their employees. That's going to create massive disruptions when this other 680 billion, whatever it is, has to be liquidated at all of these other banks that are also facing fleeing deposits because of Fed policy. And the Fed, they're powerless to do anything else because they are trapped between a rock and a hard place with no easy way out. And so we have to go through the pain through the destruction and come out the other side working to build hopefully a better, freer, more decentralized society. So there you go. I'm Sam. I am. Thanks everybody. We'll catch y'all next broadcast. Can't see what's happening by now, then you're blind. They said it was to save lives, yeah, that was a lie. The writing's on the wall, man, can't you see the signs? Now they coming for the children, they just crossed the line. They said just give it time, only three weeks and it will all be fine. 
They want you tuned in to that TV every night So that they can implant fear deeply in your mind Now in order to defeat them, yo, we need to unite The Ministry of Truth has taken over There's a reason that they chose Corona Yeah, Corona means crown, work it out Man, it's all symbolism from the beginning They told ya, a virus to the mind Infecting your thoughts, but enough is enough Now we're saying no more We see the Trojan horse at the door This is war, we can't ignore the call Big brother's gonna fall Yeah, we gotta light the torch for humanity Cause 1984 wasn't fantasy George Orwell was warning what the plan would be Now you can see it all in their strategy Yeah, they wanna call us conspiracy theorists But right now we're the ones that are seeing the clearest This is social engineering How many alarm bells have to ring before people start to hear them Serious, ah, uh, can't you see this is deliberate They hand out sanitizers and masks but not vitamins McDonald's stayed open, same time the gyms didn't The only pandemic is cognitive dissonance Yeah, this is totalitarian People are waking up so they need to keep scaring them Declaring new waves and new variants They got tricks up their sleeves so we gotta be prepared so for them they choose what the facts are with their propaganda We know what their plans are so they won't get that far, nah You don't have to be Pythagoras to see that this ain't adding up How much until you've had enough? Ah, right now it's the last straw Yeah, they're slowly bringing in their passports It's been leading to this from the start Time to look into your heart now and choose what you stand for It's the dehumanization of the nation Erasing the basic foundations of human relations The emergence of apartheid creating segregation That's the road that they're paving Cause if you're not jabbed, then it's you that they're blaming It's you that is dangerous, mass manipulation Coercing you to get penetrated What's the difference between that and a rapist? 